The words of the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be up until part three of The Well of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson. So it's through chapter 27. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I think everybody should know that I was watching Crossland during that intro, and he definitely had to look over at his book to make sure he said the right name of the book. So I'm not going to lie. I did. I did actually <laughs> eye peek over at the book, despite having definitely read it. I have been... Um, burning through so many books lately that I was like, did I even grab the right one? Especially I had three more Brandon Sanderson books arrive today. So I think I own them all now. I think I'm not missing any of them. Are you like um, a Brandon Sanderson stalker or something? Like, are we getting uh, collector, get in trouble collector for like, talking about him all the time? You know, I haven't turned him into a lampshade yet, so it's not a problem. But when I get there, you know, we'll we'll make sure to address it. Yeah, there'll probably be a news release. We'll probably tweet about it, you know. <laughs> One of us will. <laughs> All right. So today is our fifth episode discussing The Well of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson, and we're going to chat about chapters 24 through 27. But first, let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what are you kicking off this show with? Well, I received a package in the mail yesterday with a bunch of fun bitters. Ooh. So you got like the big pack of... <laughs> Of the Bitterman stuff, I just got the three-pack of the Hellfire, the Tiki, and the Mole. I'm really excited to try the Tiki ones. Um, yes. Yeah. I bought it because I could either buy two bottles of the Tiki one for like $45, or I could buy all three of these for 50 I went with these three. And I wanted to use that tequila that Sharkbait got me for another recipe. So I'm doing a tequila old fashioned with, so three ounces of Reposado tequila, three quarters of an ounce of turbinado simple syrup. I think I would have gone for half an ounce instead. It's a little bit sweet. And then six drops of the Bitterman's Mole bitters stirred. And then I garnished it with a cocktail cherry. I don't, I don't know. I did it mostly for the picture. I don't think it necessarily works as an ingredient, but it looks cool. And I didn't have an orange for an orange peel, so... Uh, Fair enough. It sounds good, though. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's pretty solid. It's it's a little overwhelmingly sweet. I should have cut back on the on the sugar. But the this mole bitters, it's so, like, differently aromatic that I wasn't <clears> expecting. <throat> Almost, like, cinnamon, all spicy, but a little bit of chocolatey. Like, it's really weird, and I like it. And I'm happy with it. So I don't know. I don't know tequila well enough to like really speak to those like nuances, notes, nuance notes. But yeah, I'm going to try this again with less sugar, maybe even cut it to like a quarter so I can taste it a little bit better and report back at some point, some point. Gotcha. Back half beer. I've got Final Fantasy one from Blackstack Brewing Company. Interesting. It is a collaboration with Phantasm, which I think is a 
like artisanal hop company, but I'm not positive. Oh, so sorry. A new exploration series to see how some of our favorite hop varietals interact with Phantasm, a shiny new product made out of Sauvignon Blanc grape skins from New Zealand. Aroma precursors found in Phantasm referred to as theols help us free up even more pungent aromas from the hops we're using. We're excited to, for you to try it. So now you have to try it right it now and tell me what it tastes like. Because that's wild. I can't so tell if you're dr- thinking or displeased. I'm thinking. I'm, th- I'm thinking. Okay. <laughs> I like it. Okay. It's like an like. I mean, it is a New England IPA. That's okay. very right. very clear. Up the front. grape skin thing was weird. Yeah. To me. But it's it's got like a dry note hmm. to it. It's subtle but good. I think I would have missed it without like reading that description and understanding that it was made from grape skins. But there is like a little bit of a. I wouldn't go as far as saying like it's a tannic nature, but it's a little bit of like sort of a dry finish on it, which you don't usually get out of New England's. So, I mean, sounds sounds tasty and an interesting thing to experiment with, too. Like, I wonder if they'll do all 16 Final Fantasies. Maybe they'll do Final Fantasy <laughs> Tactics as well. Final <laughs> Fantasy, Dissidia X. They could do a whole Kingdom Hearts spinoff series, you know, like they could mm-hmm. they could pull it off. You know? Yeah. Brave Exodus. Is Kingdom Hearts technically part of the Final Fantasy universe? Well, the Final Fantasy universe isn't really connected, so it's all they're all different stories kind of segmented. Truth be told, Kingdom Hearts is the closest thing that there is to a connected universe. I've never played any Final yeah. Fantasy game. Yeah, they're so. not sequels. There are only a handful of sequels out there. Final Fantasy gotcha. 13 technically has three games that are all labeled 13. There's like part one, part two, part three, basically. Final Fantasy 7 has a couple of spinoffs, like two or three that are worth anything. There were there was like a flip phone game that they had. A lot of that came very later. Like that was much later after the game had came out. People, they were playing into the, the hype and the capabilities of the PS2. But the first Final Fantasy game to get a proper ser- sequel was Final Fantasy X with X 2 I could go off about this all day, but I will stop now. Kingdom Hearts is the closest X- thing. 10X2? Yeah, 10-2. So okay. 10 is stylized as X. So yeah. right. It was called X2. Yeah. Yeah. I'm giving you yeah. shit. Yeah. I'm just being dumb also. So mm-hmm. I recently in my dumb time of which I often listen to a, a book for the show. I typically will throw on like a game or something like that. If I'm not going on like a walk or a bike ride or something. And the game that I started most recently was playing Final Fantasy X again for the first time since I was 12. So, yeah. uh, really interesting camera system that makes no fucking sense with modern standards. <laughs> it is a dated game. It is a remaster, not an update. <laughs> and so it mm-hmm. just looks better, but still functions the same. It's odd. All right. Um, not I'm, bad, though. I'm in this weird position where I recently got tim's ps4 so i've got god of war for it super excited to play it i've played it once and now school's really like ramping yeah i mean you've only got like seven weeks left at this point so yeah yeah just about so i want to ask for recommendations for what to play not until you're done yeah but not until i'm done Mm -hmm. and once i'm done with school then i'll get to actually jump into god of war so fair point Fair point. We were talking about your beer and the crazy name and went off on a crazy side tangent. Needless to say, I want to finish this core point since we were already there. 
Kingdom Hearts is as close as it gets to unifying the universes because multiple Final Fantasy characters linger in the same space as a bunch of Disney characters. So, gotcha. It's the only I way the OC characters from at seven all and connected. Ten, that Kingdom Hearts was connected. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's like a central okay. point. Gotcha. Yeah, like Cloud is in the first game, and Sephiroth. I've um, never played those either. So. Which is Final Fantasy Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But you know who Cloud is. Like, it's impossible to not know. Okay. You've seen an image of Cloud Strife. Just Google it real quick. I mean, I'm sure I have. No, but... no, 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 no. We're, we're doing it. I'm committing to the bit. Do do the Google. All right. You guys get it's... to hear my clicky clacky. Yeah, that's his name. I don't know where Sephiroth came from. Sephiroth is a different character that I also gotcha. mentioned. Gotcha. Okay. That's why. Oh, yeah. I have seen that before. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd be shocked. What an impractical sword. That's kind of the joke. It's not really a joke. It's actually pretty serious. It's a serious, it's a big dude sword. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> the emo kid at Hot Topic sword. This is where that like meme kind of comes from <laughs> in our generation. <laughs> so this is like the origin point of that meme. <laughs> All right. <laughs> not entirely like Bleach was doing kind of something similar or whatever, but okay, cool. So Final Fantasy one is your beer. Other Final Fantasy fun fact, which this seems to line up with almost perfectly. When did that beer come out? I I mean, like last week week or two ago, week or two ago. So last week they released Final Fantasy Strangers in Paradise, of which is a prequel to the first game, to the original Final Fantasy that sets up the villain that you kill in the first game. And so I think that that's probably why they maybe went that way but it's also just a cool naming scheme with phantasm so it makes sense the timing is immaculate is what i'm saying fair enough so yeah okay 14's an mmo anyway i'm done okay (laughs) all right what are you drinking (laughs) cross i am having a classic margarita it's nothing nothing fancy it's something i've had a lot of times on the show i just have a very busy week and so i was like let's go easy so classic margarita is Two ounces of the tequila of your choosing. One ounce dry curacao or triple sec of your choosing. I highly recommend dry curacao. I think it's the best in a margarita myself. And then one ounce lime. So, yeah. Yep. It is delectable. It is perfect. It is refreshing. It is amazing. I love me the three ingredient mark. I think it's almost a perfect cocktail. Yeah. The only reason it's even slightly inconsistent is because lime can be vaguely inconsistent when dealing with that much citrus. So. You, that, that recipe for a margarita only works if you do only works if you use good tequila yes also true otherwise you might need to sweet back it. you yeah if it's bad tequila you typically need to add some simple or like orange juice i've seen people use yeah yeah i disagree with orange juice and premise but i have seen it uh mm-hmm. It's not not crazy and common. And then not an unfamiliar sight on the show. Again, I'm having a super lemon haze from Sycamore. It was so good that I went and bought another four pack because I drank a lot of it over the course of this week. And then Bingham and I drank most of it. And this is the last one that I have. But again, double IPA made with lemons. Really good. Sitting sits on that like sour to sour to IPA spectrum on the IPA heavy side. But it's got like just a nice, nice little, nice little note there. Mm-hmm. So that's my back half awesome. beer. Perfect. Das, das the one. Okay. With that, let's get into our chapters. We start off here with chapter 24, and we start with Vin contemplating the two shadows that she feels as she burns bronze. One that's nearby watching her, and another north that is thrumming and thumping 
kind of as she's as she's looking. So there are these two distinct shadows that she's kind of feeling. She's even tested it, requesting that one of Ellen's seekers burn and see if they could see or feel it as well. And they couldn't. The only other person who could has been a thousand years dead, Lendi, of whom she barely knows his experience with. There's only a couple of a couple of notes, so she doesn't really have a whole lot to go off of. And of course, the question is, you know, why could he? And I think I would throw in here as well, like you're starting to feel the relevance of this this logbook. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So specifically, explicitly, yes, <laughs> yeah. right here. I think this is one of those signs that Quan talks about, where he he said he saw all the signs pointing to Elendi being the hero of ages, and I I'm guessing that this is one of those signs. With the void that's been created by killing the Lord Ruler, Vin Vin is in place to be this prophesized hero of ages, is my guess. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And and the logbook as a whole is also kind of tantalizing in this way because we get we can I think start to make some assumptions about what, what we're supposed to get from the logbook, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think we're I think a lot of it has to do with directly relating both Vin and to a lesser extent Ellen to Elendi and to to this prophecy the cosmic goal of defeating the deepness whatever that might be now the deepness ooh. um ooh. well yeah and I I agree with you for sure I think that one of the things that the logbook is also doing is it's giving us this biography of a leader. And so we are simultaneously hearing about all the things that makes a good leader, this supposed superior best leader to potentially have ever walked the earth or that could ever walk the earth. And at the same time, like look at a different leader and see how he could be improving or how he is improving. And so we're kind of stuck with these, these two heirs of the survivor and the logbook directly relates to both of them. Neither of them have read any of it yet, but nonetheless. Right. Right. But I mean, it was carved into iron or pressed into iron. So hopefully it still exists. Yeah, I mean, we got the rubbing, so we have the rubbing. This is the rubbing of that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. So to to move from there to sort of where the story goes after we we start there, Zane is really kind of being being handed to us as this really kind of tragic character. He's dealing with kind of what he describes as his own insanity and sort of uh, dis- dysfunction. At the same time, he's also dealing with living and dying by the words of Strafventure, of whom we know is just a massive pile of shit. And now it seems like he's starting to think that Vin could be his way out of here. But we know that Vin's taken. And he knows yeah. that Vin is taken. Like, what? The- yeah. Come on, dude. Come on. It's Come brother. on, man. Yeah. Straff really doesn't have a great track record when it comes to like kids that'll follow in his footsteps, right? <laughs> we can I, we can infer a lot about his uh, sort of relationship with his children by the end I of think this. We can. Yeah. I think more specifically though, maybe at some point when we learn more about Zane, I'd like to do a straight up compare and contrast between Ellen and Zane. And I don't know, I think that could be a cool path to explore i have a hard time with this sort of thought process and this little bit flirtatious nature because i'm still of the opinion that this could be reen 
I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, after all, if you like, <clears throat> if you take the letters of Zane's name and you uh, flip the A, so it kind of looks like an upside down E and like invert it, you've got an E and then you've got the E from the end of Zane. And then uh, if you take the N and like hack it off at the knee on one side, you've got an R and then you just turn the Z and it's an N. I know that I did more work there to turn the N into an R <laughs> than anything else, but you know, and it could the work. Z into an N. Yeah, right. But it turns. You it just, just spins. The end. It just boop. <laughs> yeah, but it's harder to turn the Z yeah. into an R. No. I, I'm i just kidding. It's feeling less and less likely, but I don't know. Never give up hope. We know that Reen was captured and tortured, mm-hmm. and we were told that he was killed, but he could have just as easily been sent to the pits of Hathsin, and we find out later that that was the fate of Zane. There are some things that line up with it. His rhetoric seems similar. I don't know. I'll I'll accept that I'm like a straight up conspiracy theorist about this. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'll, I'll get out my red twine. <laughs> Start drawing the connections out, being like, yeah, definitely, definitely. They could have been in the same place at the same time there. It could have worked. Could have worked. Yeah. I mean, Zane is definitely being set up to be this tragic character, though. Like, he is definitely being kind of handed yeah. to us in that way. Not, That's absolutely not necessarily true. He is damaged. I shouldn't say tragic. He's a damaged character, which makes him right. tragic, but, you know. Yeah. Tragic in the emotional sense, not so much the, like, literary sense. Is that what you yes. mean? Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. That's kind of what I'm shooting for. Right. And he also has this intense combination or like he has this intense fascination about the satisfaction of her own power fantasy, like Vin's power fantasy from her youth and is kind of like pushing her to recognize who he thinks their oppressors were and that that should be, you know, used against them because they seek to use them as tools, you know, kind of as though they're tools in the tool belt. And through that leverage, I think he's starting to place, he's trying to place these seeds of doubt in our girl's mind, which is sad. Yeah. His points are so well grounded though. You know, they make sense to a certain extent. And if Vin hadn't, hadn't shaken as much of her cynicism as she has, and let, let's be real. She still has a healthy dose of cynicism in her. <laughs> yeah. Like, right. Not, not trying to say anything about her in that respect, but it's less than what it was. And I think if, if she hadn't shaken any of that, she would be way more inclined to agree with them. But like you mentioned, these are seeds and they, they will take root. I think, mm. I, I think this will be a source of tension for between like Vin and Ellen. It's going to be really difficult to overcome. We'll find out. Yeah, I it they definitely are seeds right now, and I agree with you that it feels like something that Brandon is setting to be setting up to be paid off here for sure, most definitely. Mm-hmm. This is this is kind of those intro baby steps in a way that he's taking. Yeah. So, like th- this is my guess. I don't know if this counts as a prediction, so don't like. If you want to, you can hold me to it, but. My guess is this is going to be like something that builds and builds and she's going to start thinking about it more and more. And then there's going to be like one task that Ellen sends her on and it's just going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back and she's going to like explode about it. Yeah. Because this is being kind of piled up. So, yeah, I don't know. Like it's going to be some inconsequential task, but you see you like we'll get there. We'll get there at the end. But you see this 
kind of come into play and come to the into the spotlight a little bit after meeting with Straff at the end of this section when he's talking about like we underrated underestimated like we've got the best weapon in the world right now with Vin like doesn't even refer like he refers to her as a weapon and like completely ignores any sort of hum- humanity within her in that conversation I definitely think we have to talk about that more when we get there because yeah. I, yes, I agree with you. I think, but I think that it's more a play at straps insecurities than it is anything else. But that's not to say that that isn't like an innate presentation of Vin. And it's also the way that she's, she's treating herself that way too, which isn't, you know, like, and she's recognizing that she's treating herself that way and mm-hmm. like feeling bad about it. Yep. So for her yeah. to be there listening to him talk to talk about her like that can't can't be good for like or it is very good for zane's like argument i guess i don't know yeah right yeah hmm. i i think i think we'll have more to explore there pj i think we'll i think we're gonna i think we're gonna talk about it more you're saying that this rhetoric isn't just gonna like disappear and never be paid dissolve. off dissolve <laughs> i don't could it could it could it be i don't uh, think it could would it, there's no fucking way <laughs> Would it dissolve as quickly as a tin orgasm with Derhalaman? How instantaneous would that be? Oh, Listen God. for more on the Devil's Cut. Oh, it got me. That'd be so. <laughs> it's still man. in my head. I'm not going to go there. All right. Okay. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> okay. So moving into chapter 25, we start off with the logbook here, of course. Uh, and it says, He fathered no children, yet all the land became his progeny. Pretty straightforward little, little section. Well, well written. Nice flourish. Feels like a historical kind of biblical text in a way yeah i think this tells me okay getting later strap venture is not the hero of ages (laughs) (laughs) now there there's a question here are are we talking right now do you think we're talking right now about the prophesied hero of ages or do you think that we're talking specifically about alendi this feels more prophecy just the the structure the structure of the sentence feels different than the way that Quan typically talked about Alendi. Like this feels less specified. And like I don't know this this feels religious. The way that this is written, we talked about earlier. Like we talked about how Alendi wasn't mincing words so much. He wasn't getting into any sort of flowery language. This feels a little bit more like a quote that he wrote within the logbook as opposed to just something off the top of his head that he was like writing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Real quick. You're talking Quan, right? Quan is yeah. writing about Alendi. Okay. Just making sure that we weren't. Did I say that wrong? Logbook. You said Alendi writing in a very, and I was like, I think you mean Quan, oh, but I, yeah, yeah, not yeah, the big I, of a deal. I, yeah. I meant Quan talking about Alendi. Yeah, it does. Okay, yes. To your point, because he's not mincing words, that makes it feel more prophetic because it feels like he needs to copy and paste it exactly as it's written. That makes sense. Yeah. So he has to construct that very deliberately. Right. Cool. All right. So we start this chapter with Vin being rudely awoken from her poor slumber by Tindwill, who is going to demand she goes shopping with her and all Rianne. And... 
I just wanted to bring this up. I think it's a funny little, well, it's, it's, it is, it shows again that she can't even like, she's never been able to sleep well because she's used to sleeping on the streets and she, she just hasn't overcome that habit. But at the same time, that's shifted now to her basically just being like ready on a hair trigger for the invader to show up and like yeah. not even sleeping. Yeah. She wakes up pretty hot here. Like imagine, imagine from Tindwell's perspective, walking to a room and you've got this like crouching mistborn <laughs> with two daggers like at yeah. the ready at the foot of the bed is just fucking terrifying especially knowing knowing vin's like reputation it's gotta be scary but i thought it was funny the the interaction with orsura at the end as she's leaving because he he gives her this like warning bark and to, to wake her up that somebody's coming into the room she she thanks him for the warning and he gives this like little shrug like he's sort of being nonchalant about it but he like this is a huge point of growth i feel like between the two of them in that he is doing something completely not not required of him ah uh, i guess i don't know that for sure could she have commanded him to keep watch and that um, shrug is like what I was what was I gonna do? I was commanded to do this, so like I have to comply. Hmm. It's one of those it's either it's one of those two. It's just like a, a nonchalant shrug. And it's either subtle contempt or nonchalant like trying to be cool about breaking or about going above and beyond his orders. I think he's trying to be nonchalant about it. And it's it yeah. I think to your point, it is a huge moment of character growth between the two of them. If that's it's the something case. that's showing a, a stretch at the very least, like you're like mm-hmm. you're kind of alluding to between contract and friendship, even companionship maybe is a better way of putting it. It's not it's not as though they're yeah. they're friends necessarily, but they're growing at least a little bit closer and feel more like companions now. I would say I would say that that's kind yeah. of what this leans to. Not full on friendship, but you know, right? They're tying the uh, they're they're slowly pulling up the anchor on their friendship but for right now it's just a companionship it's a small little dinghy i don't know the companion dinghy (laughs) put me in the companion captain (laughs) the friend boat the friend boat the (laughs) the friend barge friend barge i was thinking buddy barge i was trying to think i was like there's got to be one with pal right there's like a pal oh man the companion catamaran. Ooh, there you go. <laughs> there it is. There it is. That is great. That is awesome. I love that. I love it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That those. That's okay. all. Okay. So obviously, a big chunk of this chapter is going to be us talking about like Alrian and the shopping experience. But before we get into that, I want to, as the story does cover the fact that we can check Spook off of our potential faker list, which was a great relief to me on first impression and first read i was like if you take my spook i'm <laughs> don't be take real my upset. spook from me <laughs> nobody takes the spook from me my lusty bornis it, it it feels so good to be is able he to lusty bornis because he likes vin hmm? is he lusty bornis because he likes vin? lust lusty, lusty bornis, bornis. <laughs> just kidding you were saying it's good to trust man me. like it, it feels good to trust spook i'm i am suspending at this point I'm doing my best to suspend my suspicion that the Chandra is able to use Alimantic mm. abilities. Like, 
for the sake of our conversations and for the sake of my own sanity, I'm suspending that like nagging <laughs> suspicion that that's the case. So operating on that, it feels good to, tr- to trust Spook. There's a bit of comedy here that I really appreciate in that the reason that Spook got roped into this whole thing was that he was awake too early, sneaking food, and got <laughs> caught by Tindwell. He's like, hey, we, yeah. need a, we need a Tin-Eye, basically, to like keep watch for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a Pac-Man to carry stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. This is also the chapter where we get where, – where Spook speaks out and basically – Mentions that he's kind of feeling neglected from the public image. Like he kind of feels left out in that Vin gets all this praise for killing Lord Ruler when like he helped too. And he just kind of gets pushed aside in, in all of the recounts of that event, which poor guy, you know, I love Spook. Yeah. Well, and especially since everyone else does get their own recognition, you know, like Ham. I mean, everyone else has a position within the Empire as it stands right now. Except um, Orsur and Spook. Yeah, right. Orsur is this secret assassin companion, so he doesn't really count. That very Not assassin, about. explicitly. Well, I know. Yeah, you're right, actually. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. He's, he's kind of like a pack mule carrying around stuff for Finn and waking he, he's, her up. Yeah, he's... Uh, an undercover he's a companion <laughs> uh, once again he's riding the buddy barge um and so spook <laughs> the companion catamaran um but uh but spook is is kind of like the neglected spy in a way like he that's that's what he was doing you know to a large extent he was often sent on on kind of those exploratory missions and like the guard and the watch post and it's important that people don't know you're a ten eye that way they know not to look for you and like what you indicate mm-hmm. so yeah i think that i think that spoot is rightfully feeling spook excuse me is rightfully feeling neglected here and i agree with you i think it's great great to bring that up because yeah it it stinks you know it feels like he deserves a little bit of credit he he deserves you know a little something something mm-hmm. ellen gets the girl i think he deserves his own sect of the of the new church popping up the church of the survivor <laughs> like we need the, the church of spook the church of the man who sees all or something the man with the eyes that the tin the tin eye faith i'm stretching i'm stretching here mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah no i i feel yeah it it does hmm. oh, man. happens later but of course so Alrian and Vin, I think there's a lot of ground to cover kind of inside of their conversation and what happens over the couple of pages where they kind of go back and forth. But I think that regardless of the conversation, there's a huge thematic resonance here, especially when you look at the last book. The last story focused on the split and faked personality of Valette versus Vin, and the conflict is fairly central to kind of parts two and three and four of that novel but now in well of ascension it's really just vin and it's no longer the street urchin vin but it is remnants of that tucked into this mistborn weapon identity that we've been talking about so much and all of those excuse me those noble niceties have dissolved away out of this sort of moral sense of duty and Alrian serves as kind of a reminder a backstop to that lost identity in some regards and i, I wonder if that's a part of the reason that Vin kind of re- resents our little puff so much. <laughs> She's referred to many times, but 
the courtly puff. Yeah, I don't know. I want to I want to spend some time talking about this and the conversation that they had. But what do you think? So I don't think I don't think it's necessarily resentment that Vin is expressing. I think it's more uh, untrusting. I think that she feels and similarly, I feel there's something up with this girl. Mm-hmm. There's something that we don't know. And there's more than what meets the eye. She is clearly very, very smart, especially when it comes to like courtly interactions, which tells me like, God, I fucking forget her name every goddamn Sean time. Sean No. Or are you thinking uh, Cliss? Cliss. This has Cliss written all over for me. Like th- this seems like a very similar play dumb, but be the one that knows everything kind of person so it, to me vin doesn't resent her i think she dislikes what she's outwardly standing for mm-hmm. but is mostly just cautious and i think rightly so expecting some sort of nefarious game from her that is definitely one that's definitely one part of the scene I wouldn't say that's the whole thing. Like, that's definitely a... That's a layer on top of this cake, right? Like, that is 100% something that Vin is grappling with. But I think Vin does resent her for her ability to be a girl, a woman in these moments. Because she, especially in the conversation with Tindwell, starts talking about, like, the past and sort of why she doesn't dress up. Or, like, you used to love these things. And there's so much of that conversation that's here as well that I don't feel like... There is it's so easy as to like pawn that off on just the mistrust for all Rianne. I think I think there's a little bit of like a little bit of that. And that's clearly not like I'm going to say not resentment also, but more self-consciousness. And is there a better term for it? Like, I feel like there's a more specific term for it, but it's hitting home for her because she is exactly who she was trying like who she was trying to act like when Ellen fell in love with her which is an entire part of the conversation that happens with Tindwell too right like so i i guess i guess resentment can be a good descriptor for it i just don't know if that's the entirety of the of the feeling you know yeah like, i feel like it feels more complicated than that yeah it's she's more like she's wrestling with like that's not who I am, and that's mm-hmm. what Ellen fell in love with. So, like, what is our relationship, you know? Yeah, yeah, and that's definitely a part of this conversation. I, I think that that is another element, and I, I use the term resent if we can think of something better, absolutely. I think yeah. we're on the same page with kind of what we're, I think, what we're shooting for. I think for. we might be, yeah. I think I understand what you're going with now. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like... It's resentment, but it's more specific than resentment. You know? Yeah, yeah. Resentment is just kind of a general, like, bitter attitude. Maybe it's... There's, there's like, tinges of regret that she can't be someone else as well. Like, and she places, I think, some of that frustration. Inadequacy? Inadequacy. That's good. Yep. She, she does feel kind of inadequate because she can't be that way. But I think she places that and sort of registers it directly on Ariane, especially in the way that she insults her. Vin is not one to insult someone. She is one to kind of say how it is. But I, I don't think that she's one often to cut to insults first, which is why I found this to be a little bit more perplexing. But I think it makes sense if we can paint that brushstroke a little bit with this other insecurity that she's feeling. I'm I'm curious, though. Because 
the insults happened before she even met her. She said, what was that pink thing that walked by the it's first true. time she saw her? So, But I, I think we could even go back and say that that's, there's an element there. Like, yeah. she resents, she re, it's almost like she resents her inability to be a woman. Like, a pro, like actually be, and by that I mean in the sense of, like, for, like, the way that she wants to be for Ellen. The way that she assumes Ellen wants a woman to be. Yes, right. Yes. Yep, exactly. We get, I think we get a little bit of recourse on this by the end. But we not do immediately. We, we get it. Yeah. It's not all encompassing, but it is some reassurance from Ellen in a very like stark way. Yeah, which I know we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I I think that that's a really good. I think I love I love Alrian. I think this is exactly who Lindsay was talking about, like not liking that much. But I think she plays a really critical part to this story, indirectly explaining like Vin's. She's a foil. Yeah, she's totally. She's totally a foil. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Sometimes you can have a one note foil like that, and that's fine. I'm not saying that she's one note, but right now that's what we have. Right now we have a one note foil. Sinister intent and and some other things, but yeah. I I want to address a correction here instead of the conversation that happens with Alrianne. They talk about Breezy, of course, because Breezy comes up all the time, and the fact that she refers to him as Breezy makes me laugh hysterically every time I read it. But on top of that, so we had previously said we talked about Breeze's origin, and it's kind of dubious uh, at best to me as I've gone through and I, I did review kind of what we said in the previous episode, and then I went back and reread annotations and went and double-checked a couple of things. Last episode, we'd clarified and said that there is an interesting tension that is created from that Breeze was a nobleman of a noble house as opposed to a ska working for Kelsier or even a half-ska. Here, we haven't stated that he's a half-ska. In annotations from Brandon, we haven't stated that he's a noble. So, there's this isn't perfectly clear. So, where are those annotations? They're on Brandon's website. Okay. He, he publishes, he's published them for every book in Mistborn. Or the original trilogy, I should say, at the very least. Gotcha. And The Way of Kings, a couple of other novels. But, yeah. Interesting. So, they're kind of chapter commentary you know, from from the author. And I don't like to cite them often, but I did in my read pull that and I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that inside of the story. And I think it's because it's not perfectly portrayed, especially when you have moments like this of where we question that sort of loyalty. But I think given the context of the annotation and the conversation that we've had previously, this could also be a way that Breeze is trying to kind of suss out her feelings about Ska by saying that he's a half Ska. And it could be a way of him kind of working at her allegiances to understand where she stands on these issues better. I don't know. It's it's a complex question, especially because we have kind of conflicting grinding statements. Is there anything that Breeze claimed to be among the crew? Like, did he ever claim to be half noble or has he always claimed to be like high, higher born ska to a certain extent? I don't, he never claimed it. Right. So like, there's no, there's no claim. He just is that way and is kind of uppity. And so it leads us to believe that there's the previous chapter in which, or the previous episode, last episode in which we talked about the fact that he's referred to as Lord, which is, that feels like a, a call out. That's the only thing that called out, as far as I understood, you you brought that up as yes. like the thing that points to him as being noble, but there's no there's nothing else contextual 
correct? So far, yep. So far, okay. I don't know. This whole thing is really confusing me to me still because I didn't, I don't know. It didn't feel super clear. Yeah, right. So the question is, uh, is like, where's where does this come from? And now I mm-hmm. now I post to you listeners um, out there of whom were probably screaming at me last episode being like, I'm not sure. But like the words of Brandon say this. Brandon is also one of the most interesting authors because he actually does answer so many questions out of context or rather out of material, if that makes sense, and adopts them as canon regardless of whether they're written or not. So sometimes there's just shit that he says in an interview that is canon. And it's like, neat. People do a really well, good job cataloging those and like following everything he does because he does that kind of a thing. But that can make it difficult to be like a... a I don't like that. <laughs> it makes it, like it, makes that it hard. Well, and that's why, that's why what I was trying to clarify, at the very least, that's, I think, maybe the first time outside of the final episode that we did on Mistborn that I brought in something from the annotations ever into context because I really, I think... This proved to me in this moment that we stick to the text as much as possible yeah. because introducing the other stuff can introduce complications. So some of it might sort out from words of Brandon. Some of them might be answers to questions that we don't have. But I think there's my stance on wobs for Mistborn for listeners. Out of the episode, I don't think we brought it up in the episode, but out of the episode, you brought up to me that there is and I didn't catch this and I didn't go back and reread it after you mentioned it to me, but doesn't says it also refer to ham as Lord. Yes. And there's like some sort of rationale behind that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And we're just not sure. Is there, is there I, rationale I behind it? No clue. No clue. Oh, I haven't dug, I haven't dug into it because I was like, I, th- I was already so like at a loss. <laughs> well, um, then it after... doesn't fucking matter that he called him Lord shit. Well, that's my point is then the words of Brent, like it, it shifts context. And if I wouldn't have brought it in, it wouldn't have done it, but it felt like it was the appropriate thing to do. Cause technically it's Canon and it's like, Oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot to juggle there. So mm-hmm. I wanted to maybe, I wanted to take this opportunity to clarify that, we're going to try to stick to the text as much as possible. There may be words of Brandon that are out there that clarify other things, but I think it's important that we just live within the text as much as possible, unless there's something that truly isn't answered by the time we're done with a series, if that makes sense. Okay, That's know. when cool. I think we can lean on the annotations and words and stuff like that for answers and for listeners out there. That's That'll be our policy. If you message me and we can talk about things directly, I will probably answer and like, agree disagree to have the conversation there but i think for this medium especially for pj's predictions and stuff like that i can't be focusing on the words of brandon and even bring those up because that's something that pj can't read i'm not gonna read them like even if i could i like the slight possibility of me like spoiling something i'm i i don't want to (laughs) right right i know i'm a stickler about it but i don't i don't want outside influence on my understanding of the text especially if we're going to be journeying through the cosmere a bunch there's so many mm. of those that are impactful also by the way gonna step like a a question backwards a little bit i think alrianne is archandra spy oh i think alrianne ran away from set and snuck into ventures keep and set doesn't care so much about her and sent a chandra in to oh shit 
Here's here's a question. How did there'd have to be another assassin that went in with them, right? If we're if we're taking the Condra contract as law, like as as strict law, they'd have to send in a separate assassin to kill whoever the Condra is intimidating. Probably. Okay. So a strike a strike force of an assassin and the Condra followed her in. Which, I mean, there was that assassin crew that was at the beginning of the novel, you know, with the yeah. misborn and whatnot. So it's not unheard before, of, is I guess my point. That was before Breeze came in, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was all before yeah. Breeze. Okay. But, Which means yeah. also pre-Alrian. I think Alrian followed Breeze, got also followed, and uh, killed and... Or maybe even didn't get, didn't follow him in. Oh, she'd have to have, because the bones were there. Okay. I've got ideas. I think it's Alrian. It's convoluted, but I've got ideas. Okay. I'm putting that down as a prediction, so that it came out of, came out of left field, but mm-hmm. I, I love it. I'm glad that you well, are, uh, are constantly th- contemplating this. I think the bones were there. Here, here's, here's what I think happened. Here we, here we go. Wild shit. Alrian followed Breeze in. Was Breeze Breeze hmm, shit. Alrian didn't immediately follow Breeze in. No, I, I know that. Okay. This but Breeze was excluded from questioning because he didn't show up until like, Yes, and we tested him to confirm. We've already tested him. We know well, that it is. No, no, no. I, I know that much. I'm just wondering if it would have been possible for Alrian to have followed Breeze in, got killed. Got swallowed by Condra. They all fucked off out of there, and then the Condra came in. But Breeze was Breeze was like preemptively excluded from like real serious contemplation because he showed up too late. Right? Yeah, that's part of the reason. So he showed up after it happened. It couldn't have been him because there was no like. It's likely that what happened to the other body happened during that time frame. Right. Aroundish that time frame. Okay. Not mm. exactly, but aroundish before <laughs> the breeze thing happened. That's kind of the Yeah. Maybe not then. I don't know. This is a mystery. I'm sticking with it for now. Like this is gonna change. I know this is gonna change, but once I change once I change this like prediction, I will drink for the one that I'm like switching. Fair enough. Right. Is that fair? You're totally fair. What's so <laughs> tough about having a conversation about this story is that it is a fucking mystery mo- novel. This is an Agatha Christie novel to some degree. And so, like, I can't even, like, try to provide you with the context for things that you might have missed because it could be such an overt spoiler that I don't, you know, does that make sense? Do you understand my point? It my does. thought process? Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, well, if you caught it, you might know, but you might not. I don't fucking know. I didn't put it together. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but cool. So that's that's our stance on words of Brandon. Glad that we have that prediction in. And I'm, I think I'm going to try to keep the annotations out again until maybe we're done with the trilogy. I don't. I don't like the inclusion of them. I really don't like the inclusion. I'll be real. For the most it, part, they aren't can, they aren't canonizing changes like that. This is just one of those that was context. This isn't really because we're having this discussion in the first place. This isn't really a spoiler. This is proven to be a fact later. But 
The problem is, is when the context of this being brought up was inside of the annotations, which is what caused me to think about it at this point when this fact was brought up, when I wrote the statement. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Like it, it, it is but textual there's, there's eventually. No, there's no reason why Ham was also referred to as Lord. I don't know. That's the other okay. part of the problem is like, <sighs> I didn't do that research. I just remember the Breeze one standing out and there's that's a part of the conversation ham is not a noble which is why you could also chalk it up to sazed just calling his friends lords on like instinct that's what i took like that's yeah. how i took it was like he was talking about leaders in the empire at the moment mm. and lord is a good word for that yeah but yeah right and i I think that's what it was intended to be. So the problem is, is that I, my brain then went and conflated facts that I knew from outside sources with the story. And so we are going to disentangle those facts going forward as best as possible. Cool. Um, so yeah, again, I don't think that's really a spoiler because we've already had this conversation. We've kind of already spoiled it. We know that it's fact. It's not that big of a deal. The context of it being a fun conversation point was right here anyway. So it's not like, Nothing is being ruined by talking about this now. Okay. Cool. We're going to switch gears now and talk about Tindwell breaking from the line of thinking about Ariane and pushing on something we've talked about between the two of us. Why Vin broke it off with Ellen to begin with, or like didn't, didn't break it off. Excuse me. That's not the right terminology. Didn't go ahead with the proposal. Didn't accept the proposal. And I got to say from Tindwell, these are some emotionally puncturing lines that come during this section. And Tindwell with Vin is a wildly different character of whom I really appreciate. You can really sense her compassion here before when we're talking about all Rianne, she says she is a product of her upbringing as are you, which I think is a really for me, it was a gut punch line to mm-hmm. refer to the way that she behaves. And then she says in a really com- moment of compassion, she says, no child, I wish to help you turn into whoever you are. In response to kind of Vin's blithe retort right before this, it's makes me like Tindwell a lot. So first, first of all, I think I mentioned that I thought that Tindwell would be like playing to whatever student she is like Mm -hmm. talking to whatever teaching style they need. And that's explicitly proven to be true here. So I'm glad I had the the grip on that properly, but yeah. she's such a cool character. Tindwell's so cool. She's another keeper, correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And I know at, at a certain point she mentions what she's like focused on, but as far as we can tell here in biographies, like is it's biographies. Okay. Yep. So that makes a ton of sense because she's focusing on like interactions and perceptions and it's a fun more emotional and less scholarly comparison to Sazed and it it shows sort of the depth and breadth of the of the keeper populace I think it's so interesting that you pin this as her being are you saying that she's more emotional not emotional is wrong Okay. But less less scholarly. I don't know if I fully I don't know if I fully agree with that, but I see where you're coming from. More, I feel more like we could social. get a little bit more narrow. Yeah. Hmm. See, because I think Sazed indulges in flights of fancy a lot. And is he does. He, he, That's true. 
I think he questions a lot more things versus she is like stern and direct, even if like she's very rigid, I think, whereas says is very aloof, if that makes sense. But I, I think that's more in line with what I'm talking about, wherein she is rigid because because that's how she feels she needs to carry herself, whereas says is very book smart. Let's go sure. with book smart. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I guess I was just I was probably dragging my own impressions of scholars into my brain when I was replying to mm-hmm. your idea of it being scholarly. Where like scholars are generally the hardcore sticklers to books versus the way that we'd like Her- scholars to be is ones who uh, read a book and try to interpret it in many ways. She's a stickler about social conformities. True. In different situations. So. It's less about her understanding of religions, like says it is, and more about this is how somebody should present themselves in this given situation. And bi- biographies makes perfect se- perfect sense for that. Like understanding the bi- biography of a king and several kings. Like this mm-hmm. is how kings should carry themselves. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's so. They're not they're not like inverses of each other, you know what I mean? But they are like they overlap in some ways and they like they've got a good Venn diagram, I should say, of influences. And and I think that's the way to think about them is they are kind of on opposite sides. But then at the same time, they've got interactions in the middle, which is the folks that they're teaching. But their methodologies are very different, like you're saying. Well, it's interesting. It's differently interesting. We're just going to keep using (laughs) the term. I didn't use interesting that time. I am because to a certain extent a lot of religions are biographies or mythology. So, yeah. I mean, mythology is a mythology, are, if not a biography. Yeah. Right. If there's a, a single entity that it follows and if that entity is mortal. So I, I can see this like overlap potentially, but they are starkly different people in the way that they carry themselves. So it's a fun comparing contrast that we could put together for them. Yeah, and we do get we do get that it is nice to have an additional lens on what the keepers could be, right? We right. were really stuck with Sazed last time. We I don't even think we met another terrorisman in the last book. Um, we didn't. So it's nice to at the very least have one counterpoint right now, or two technically with Quan. Three if you count Rashak, I guess, but Rashak doesn't really count. Was Rashak a keeper? Was Quan a keeper? No, keepers didn't exist until. No, you're right. I was I said terrorisman in oh. addition. So yeah, gotcha. But, like, did we really, like, meet Rashek? No. Did we... Mm-hmm. We are meeting Quan gradually, so we can kind of get an understanding of terrorist people in general, but that's happening right now, so... And right. at about 10 words every 20 pages or so. <laughs> um, yeah, I just... I love Tindwell. I, I love... I just... My heart. My heart. So, the dress that... The dress that Vin gets, it get she gets into this royal blue dress and gets this flash of Valette again as she kind of goes around before she's presented with another opportunity to dress address the crowd of the Church of the Survivor and the General Ska as well as their anxieties. She's slowly becoming a figurehead, kind of whether she wants to or not, and is consistently kind of pushing back against it. It's only because of the urging of Tindwell that she kind of goes and directly confronts people and kind of steps outside of her comfort zone in this way to become less of an assassin and a little bit more of a leader not entirely but you know yeah 
at least someone that someone that they put their faith into, uh, both uh, metaphorically and in reality. Yeah, I found it odd a little bit this interaction because she clearly was able to just kind of go through the motions and do exactly what she needed to do, and like even though all of her like words were at odds with what she actually believed in, she she mentions that she was lying to them. And she didn't seem to understand why she was actually making the remarks that she was making. It felt kind of out of body the way that I read it, at least. And I'm wondering if there's something external pushing on her. Like maybe there's something from Tindwell, but she's she is acting in a way that's much more compassionate and stately than what she actually believes in. And what she actually mm-hmm. feels. And it just kind of sucks that in this entire like moment of progression, I don't know about growth because she doesn't feel it and she doesn't believe in it, but it is a progression in the way that she's like carrying herself within the community. And that, that whole moment is cut down at its knees by this attack on the wall that happens immediately afterwards. Yeah, it definitely is cut down at its knees. There's no... No pushback for me on on that front. I think that to call it progression, I think is the right way to put it because Vin doesn't take any time to internalize what this means, really, and so there's no immediate growth right now. And um, actively disagrees with it. She, she's yeah. on, in the camp that she just lied to everybody and doesn't understand why. Yeah, she doesn't under. I mean, she has been the quiet assassin, the quiet street urchin, you know, and her life has been that of the quiet person with a couple of friends. And so this is definitely pushing her outside of that that comfort zone. Is that a good thing? You know, is this the right thing for Finn? Those are all valid questions, I think. But I think you're right. This moment does kind of get um, cut down by what happens next. Right. So we we cut there, of course, to Ellen. I hate that I just did that. We get we get the moment cut at the knees and then we cut down to we cut to we cut to, fuck me. Uh, but we, well, we it's not your Ellen. fault. That's yeah. me. No, I mean I mean it's fine. You already wrote um, all these questions. True, but so we we do we move over to Ellen and the siege on the walls. The attack from Straff being a massive flex on his part, saying, "Hey, I can still get you." Vin shows up at the last second to push away as many arrows as she possibly can that are coming in a hail. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think anyone dies here, or do we lose? a couple of people i don't remember from ellen's perspective but some of straff's men die yeah because she knocks them back well and ellen's forces managed to hit some i think is explicit explicitly what it says got it i think there are some injuries on our side yeah and also they're throwing elemancers a few soldiers fell Ellen soldiers killed because they'd been too proud to surrender the city. So there's even like there's a racking of guilt there as well from Ellen's perspective about the fact that if you would have surrendered, people wouldn't have died, which kind of points to like Ellen is this moral paladin, right? Like Ellen is truly lawful good, like strictly good guy, righteous path, high morality of, you know, try to save as many people as possible, try to do the things that frees and benefits the most people as often as you possibly can. And that's a conflict with the base concept of what's going on around him. I mean, it's that conflict with the conflict in the story. Yeah. Mm. Fuck mm. this moment. 
Yeah, this whole moment, like, from staff's perspective, is such a fucking power move, man. Yeah. And it's super well-played strategy. I'm sure this I'm sure this happened historically. I can't imagine something like this happening now, though, because any sort of aggressive military action, like, everything's on a hair trigger nowadays when it comes to, like, military advancement. But then again... We're not so much dealing with defending individual cities. We're, we're talking about like entire countries. So the scale is completely different. So looking at like looking at it from that perspective of man, what, what would it be like now to have like a false start intentionally just to show your hand a little bit? I don't, I don't think that could happen in modern military society. Like a strike like this, you don't think it happen as a bluff. No, without just straight up declaring war. I don't think so. Mm. I don't want to get into this too much. There's some other things in like Syria and Afghanistan with like states positioning themselves that feel similar. Mm. But that's, I think, the nature of geopolitics at the moment. But right. So I think this is actually I don't want to call it fairly common, but at the very least, it's done in different and smaller ways. No one would be this brazen for the most part. Outside of the Russians, of whom have done this a couple of times over the last 20 years. So, yeah. So, yeah. all that said, I'm curious what, what's going to happen around the city, like, among the populace. Because, like, this happened at their wall. It's not isolated from the public's perspective. Right. Right. They're very aware. And I think that's a part of the plan here is the panic. Right. But, that this will cause. But there's like rumors going around that they successively defended the city. Like rumors spread such distorted information all the time that like I'm really curious what sort of stories come out of this specifically. Hmm. If it if it'll even come into play, like maybe an actual conflict breaks out before we can really see. But it's just kind of a matter of how much distortion comes through. As opposed to whether or not it will. Because people talk, man. And I I think that this adds to some of the unrest. I think that's another reason to do this. Is to have, you know, a couple of... A couple of soldiers come... Or not make it home to their family. Right? And then others do make it back eventually. It'll rotate off the walls. And, like, the story spreads that way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It feels like this this is a targeted, disciplined move. Right. With that, we go into chapter 26. Vlogbook here. He was forced into war by a misunderstanding and always claimed he was no warrior. Yet he came to fight as well as any man. It's Ellen. Yeah. Not, yeah. Maybe, not, maybe not a misunderstanding, but I don't know. Or maybe the misunderstanding is yet to occur. Maybe. Could there be multiple heroes of ages, PJ? No. No. Yeah, that's right. It's a hero singular it's the name of the book yeah this is this is an odd point because you've at the very least got like the context of what the book's called <laughs> or no that's the next book right yeah right right i know okay but you know <laughs> even the title is in and of itself a little bit of i mean it's in the most minor of ways it rules out <laughs> the potential idea of there being multiple heroes yeah maybe i don't know yeah maybe not maybe not yeah okay cool so we start this chapter with what 
it will be covering largely a conversation with Straff Venture in his tent on enemy soil. But I think thematically, what's worse is that we find out that the dress has been altered for use as a mistborn sort of tool for Vin here. While this shifts the dress into something practical for Vin as this assassin, as this weapon, I personally read it as another reminder that she has even turned this like vestige of this person that she this we were talking about earlier like this resentment i used the word resentment earlier this identity that she had into a weapon as well like she even sacrifices the dress and the vestige and like the prim proper i just it sucks man i completely disagree with you okay i all right so why this dress yeah is exactly what she was looking for. This like she was asking for alterations specifically so it'd be better to fight in and better to like she likes the pretty like dress up mm. scenarios but she doesn't like that it feels stifling to her ability to run and jump and fight and be agile. So all of her alterations that she was asking for were to accommodate like everything she could think of off the top of her head to, to accommodate any scenario where she needed to act like a mistborn while wearing that dress. And this is just the more refined version of it that came from experience of making dresses for mistborns, you know, like, yeah, I think, I think that this is, a way better like melding of her two sort of split ideas of what she wants to be. I think she wants to be this powerful force and to be this misborn, but she also likes being pretty and dressed up and a little like not proper, but a little bit refined. So uh, like she does what, what she's fighting against right now is the idea that she's being used. But I think she loves the strength that comes with being a Mistborn. And I think that's mostly what she identifies as. So I, I think this dress is exactly what she wants. I see what you're getting at. I definitely see it. For me, and I, I totally I totally get it. It it does there is this element of a melding, right? My my problem with that illustration is that just because she's wearing it doesn't mean that she is doing the other part of that, which is acknowledging that she's stifling this part of her personality, I think. She hasn't gone so far as to acknowledge it. I think this is a twisting of that to like present it in a way where it's like, yeah, I like even this serves a purpose. You know, like you you allow if if PJ, if we truly lived like the Stoics of old, um, according to like Marcus Aurelius and whatnot, we would dress like shit because there's no reason to like do any like what's what is the purpose of presentation, right? But there there's some like self identity. I do dress like shit too, but it's a, that's a completely different reason. That's because I have gone full goblin mode. That's entirely different. <laughs> I, I want to clarify band t-shirts <laughs> true <laughs> i am wearing an angels and arabs t-shirt and pj is wearing a census fail t-shirt but that is 90 percent of my like wardrobe <laughs> right well band and brewery t-shirts but to that point we get a little we extract a little bit of joy out of like wearing this stuff right because it's a part of our identity because we identify mm -hmm. with it she is 
changing a different part of her identity to fit. And and just hear me out for 30 okay. seconds, 30 more seconds. Yep. yep. Okay. Think about Assassin's Creed, right? All of their clothing was utility. It was utility first, not to serve their personality because they were a part of a religious cult. This doesn't feel that different to me because she is ultimately serving as an assassin first and everything is utility to the assassin personality, not Vin as a person. She is identifying only as an assassin. Okay. I can see that perspective. This is a good step. Let me, let me, let me preface with that. This is a step. I guess I can accept it being a step. Yeah. Fair. I think that she is constantly pining over the idea of dressing up like a noble, but her sticking point is that it's impractical mm-hmm. and she doesn't like the fact that like she feels uncomfortable not being able to spring into action. Like, But, but she shouldn't always like, be responsible. She can't save the world, you know? And I think no, that's part of the no, thing she that can't she has save to deal the world, with. But she doesn't strike me as somebody that wants to just relax and be a noble person. She likes, she likes the, the idea of looking pretty and being in these fancy garments. And she still gets that satisfaction out of this while also having a practicality to it. I'll give you this. If she does it again, going forward, I think your point makes sense. I think right now we don't have that context because she hasn't been doing it up until this point. She'd be forced to go shopping. She didn't seek this out. She didn't seek this out as an identity luxury. She did. What? No. What do you mean? She didn't go shopping intentionally. Like she was forced to go shopping. She, she was brought along, not against her will. Like she had, she had the option. She didn't want to stop. She didn't seek out the opportunity to go, sure. but she yeah. was given the out and she in was like explicitly told, I'm not way. making like, you go. Yes. Yes. In a little bit of a get guilty way. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's like a guilty my mom saying like, you're, you're going to stay at home and you're not going to get to get the dinner that we're all going to have. And it's like, well, fine, I'll go. But didn't she feel, didn't she seem so much more enthusiastic about dressing up when she had the ability to give these alterations? Like what she wants is yeah. a good looking dress that she can also like acting i think for her it wasn't even just the alterations the alterations were a nice touch on top of the whole thing but she really flourished just in that moment on the dress right i think we skipped over this and we we meant to talk about it but like her she was referred to by tindwill as like being majestic and graceful inside of that Mm -hmm. dress as well and that is something that i think is a bit missing from this part of the context is like the excuse for wearing a dress shouldn't be that I need to be armed to the teeth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, okay, make alterations so you're comfortable. For sure, for sure, for sure. But the reason that these alterations are made is so that she can serve as an assassin. Well, but... It's in service of reason, that identity. The reason her alterations that she was asking for yeah. were for the same purpose. She'd just have to hide the alimantic, like, vials somewhere else, and she'd have to... This just gives her the opportunity to still be elegant while doing mm-hmm. what she was going to do anyway. I don't think that there's anything bad about that at all because anything bad about like if she hadn't asked for alterations at all and it just showed up like this, I think you have a good point. But she was looking for specific sweeping alterations to make her more like to make to make the dress more practical as a mistborn and this dressmaker was more 
experienced than what Vin ex- like expected and gave her like the best of the best alterations possible for what mm-hmm. she was looking for anyway. I don't know. It didn't it, it to me it didn't feel somber at all or bittersweet even. Well, I don't I, I'm not saying that she thinks of it as bittersweet or that she even reflects on that. I'm saying that I reflect on it as another point with her character where she is disassociating those identities so much and like superseding. So she did is, you feel that way about her asking for alterations in the first? Okay. For the record, actually, she doesn't ask for those. Tindwill does. Does she not at all? Yes, she Tind- does. No, Tindwill asked for, I'll read it to you right here. I have it right here. Make the cups of the sleeve wide, Tindwill said, and sew a couple of pockets into them for certain personal items. Vin doesn't ask. It's Tindwill. No, no. but after that, she she gets very specific about what she needs done to it in order to make it like comfortable for her. She needs okay. like things taken in. She needs like slits opened Again, up. Again, that's Tindwill. The chest and waist can be tight, Tindwill continued, but not restrictive. Lady Vin needs to be able to move freely. It's all Tindwill. I don't, I, I feel like, I, I feel it's, like it's on Vin gets, okay. Cause I feel like Vin gets very specific about it. The big thing that Vin gets specific about is the color. That's the thing that Vin gets specific about. I really thought she asked about like slits being opened up on the sides. That's Tinwell, man. Then I think we get the note later from, uh, well, we, we do get, you could do that. Vin said. Like, yeah, that's confirmation, though. That's that's like, confirmation. But she didn't realize that was a possibility. Right. Because she's questioning her identity. I think that's my that's my like, I guess. OK, to your point, that actually feeds in a little bit more that she's acknowledging that these identities can be merged a little bit better. She's seeing that as a possibility. I can I can I can concede that point inside of this. But she is not looking to to even. She's not looking to even build that bridge between her, her, the sides of herself. Yeah. Because I think they're at odds with each other. She, she doesn't realize that she sees them as opposing things that can't coexist. And she resents the existence of Valette because it, it's, it's what Ellen fell in love with and it's not actually her. So it's, it's a source of tension for the real Vin. And yeah. I oh, think sure. th- this, this allows her to indulge in those shinies of noble life while still being true to herself. Because I, I think Mistborn Vin is the real Vin. She talks about how natural she mm. feels in the, in the dark, like in, in the night and in the mist. Like she, she feels like herself. But she also has missed that part of her to some degree. I'm not saying I'm not disagreeing with you. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that I think that that is a perspective of someone who has been um, beaten down in various ways and feels enabled for the first time. Right. There's this other yeah. side of her that she does feel like she's neglecting because she doesn't feel like she can be good enough for Ellen and is completely turning off that side of her as a as a part, as a consequence of that. Isn't the blending of the two yeah. like the perfect situation? Yeah, but I guess my point is, is that I think that this is the wrong direction for this moment. Does that make sense? I disagree. I I get what you're coming from, but I disagree. Yeah, I knew that this was going to be a big talking point because I think that it is. I think it's really important, like as we've been talking about all Rianne, and I think that this this section right here is underrated. I think a lot of people buzz over this, but 
I think that it is so much character growth and it's got so much depth because we can have conversations like this inside of the story because we have character moments. We have character notes. We've got great. I I mean, I just fucking like this. This is what people should be should be thinking about. Not the not the immediate plot, because there's so much character conflict here with Vin in every decision and with Ellen and with the way that he reacts to things. And yeah. Hmm. Okay, we spent a lot of time talking about dresses, but (laughs) (laughs) I think it was worth it. Needless to say, we don't fully agree, but we both believe it's important. And at the very least, I can concede that it is a positive step, but I do not think it is a holistic admittance to the fact that she is a problem. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Cool. Especially after we have this whole conversation about like why, you know, why she didn't go with ellen you know that's that's past right we already read the logbook for the next chapter but it's all it's all intertangles this week's chapters also like really weave together chapter to chapter so we get a quick catch-up between ellen and ham in which he asks to be called ellen instead of l which i find to be kind of a result of tindwell's machiavellian-esque kind of training for ellen teaching him how to be a little bit more prim and proper presentation focused and then in addition kind of the art of you don't want to call it backstabbing but like a little bit of uh deception with presentation is kind of the Mm. or deception through presentation machiavelli versus ellen's kind of more casual leadership style that existed before you know where he believed that the moral paladin was kind of the the way forward i've mentioned that a couple of times i just think that that's a good way of like grouping his ideology in a really clean way (laughs) using that character trope but while obviously he's sort of balancing his own style with her recommendations still this one just shakes me a little bit this this change we last week talked about how cool it was that he was coming to replace kel in the eyes of his friends as l you know so this is a step backwards in a way it's one in one backwards yeah In, in one way yeah it's a step backwards, but I don't think it's like a committed – it's not a committed step. And I think Ellen, to a certain extent, kind of agrees with me in that, saying like, the, your majesty will come later. And my thought on that during this scene – and it's kind of moot by the end of this section – but why not just jump to your majesty right away? Because a slow, progressive sort of shift, ultimately, I think – leaves a weird taste in everybody's mouth and as, as it kind of feels like it's a methodical trying to be casual about it grab for power and grab for like status it, it, like even among his friends so that's why i bring uh, up like the machiavellian twist of the dagger you know because that's what this feels yeah. like uh, with his friends you know it just it feels like he could have just explained why and asked to be called your majesty the entire time. Like, hey, we're friends. I get that. You get that. For the sake of this kingdom, I need to be taken more seriously. I need to hold a position above friend. And I need you to I need you to address I need you to ah, I need you to address me as king. And I think that would have gone over so well. Like the crew totally understands what they're dealing with here and maybe a little bit of ribbing and pushback, but I don't think it would have been serious, like disagreement from anybody, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Right. So like, I feel like this compromise that Ellen comes to with himself is more or less a show of weakness as a leader. Okay. 
I don't think you're wrong. I just didn't expect that. Yeah, this this is an inappropriate blending of those two sort of mm-hmm. sides of his stances, right? This is it, it. It is a binary that Tindwell is pointing out, and he is he is siding with the friendship binary, like this friendship side of it, while pretending to like make a compromise. You know? Yeah. Right. Totally. That's a great way of putting it. It is. It's like you know he he should put. I love the binary comparison, right? But I would I would even put it into literal binary language, computer code language, and say it's a one or a zero, and then he put both a one and a zero, thinking that that was the same, and it's not. It's something worse in this yeah. circumstance because it's neither but, taking the stance of a friend nor is it taking the regal authority of uh, of a king. Yeah, it's it's. It's neither. <laughs> like, yeah. It really is meaningless, ultimately, in what Tindwell was trying to instill in him. Yeah. By the end of this, we can wash our hand of this entire conversation, though, like you were saying exactly. at the beginning. Like, but it, I think it's, it's important anyway, to debate. But yeah. like, it's, is it, there's no conviction to it. Is, is it, though? Is it moot? For now, it is. Maybe. I mean, yes. I don't know. I don't. Do you Assu- know? Assuming the council or the alligator the council, will take your job, he's gonna wear pants. Sorry, fucked Christy Elia, but that one joke <laughs> lives in me forever. I will never get over the alligator <laughs> pants drunk girl joke ever. The rest of the joke sucks, but the moment that it switches to the alligator pants comment, I just lose it. Anyway, sorry, mm-hmm. derail. <laughs> Can you imagine an alligator being the king of Luthadel, though? Just a second. <laughs> can you can you imagine that? Assuming the council actually has power to metal dispose the king. Hmm? Nothing. Go ahead. <laughs> the council has the power to dispose the king. Assuming assuming it does, it has been voted upon and unanimously signed by 23 members. Yeah, he's not king anymore at the end of this chapter or at the end <laughs> of the section. That's fair. So maybe that will change again. But for now, yeah. It's moot. Mm-hmm. But either way, it, to me, this shows a complete lack of conviction. And Ellen is swinging it as if it's a step forward. But I think it's entirely a step backwards in, in I, what Tindwell was trying to teach. I think I don't know. OK, here's where I'd clarify. Well, me, hmm. Hmm. I think you're I think you're right in what Tindwell is trying to teach. I think is important there. I think on the whole, it's just a step backwards. Regardless, I think that it also would have been a mistake to fully embrace Tindwell in this case. But I don't think that Ellen has a reason to try to sort that out because he's kind of just taking her advice carte blanche, you know, but he's doing neither. He's not saying, yeah, yeah it's OK that my friends call me L and he's not saying, yeah, my friends should call me your mal- majesty. He is going That's just true. directly in the middle and it, there's no conviction on either side. Yeah, it's not better. That's a good point. I don't want to. He's convincing himself that, that this is forward progress and mm-hmm. it's not. Yeah, it's just landing himself in no, no man's land. Really? Yep. Yeah, it does. It does kind of strand him in that way. Hmm. Because how do you move forward from that? <laughs> you regress one way or another. Like yeah. on either side, on either side, it's a regression, either back to what he was or forward and then eroding his friendship to some degree, like creating an oddity yeah. of sorts. It'd be like if I said, yeah, I really want to go by Crossland and like I try that out for like six months and I'm like, 
No, nah, I want to go by X. Can you call me X? Something's wrong <laughs> no, with fuck you. you. <laughs> yeah, like, I thought we were friends. <laughs> I, I call you shithead more often than I call you by your name. I just say yo, basically. Yeah, right, it's true. Half my texts are yo. <laughs> it's a drive address is yo. And then I reply, yo, question mark. And then I wait two minutes and PJ's like, here's the real thing. <laughs> Or you call. <laughs> that's, that's that's how our interactions work. Once you respond uh, in in turn, it's like, all right, he's around. I'll give him a call. <laughs> I'll give him a ring. I'll give him a ring. Do you, what was the, do you remember was that the other app day. that was just called Yo? Yes. Yes, I do. You've just adopted does that it still in your exist? personality. It does not function. It does exist. It does not function because I did oh, re-download really? it to try to push uh, you an email notification inviting you back to the service. Like, of a year ago, I thought of this idea. I thought it was a genius. I thought it was really funny. Well, um, a year ago, I didn't have an iPhone. No, but you could get the Yo. It was on the Android store. Well, it was not. Let me let me let me download no, it, it, it again. It doesn't. No, I refuse just, because it's just you could notif- work. You, no, it didn't. That was the whole problem. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. So like none broken. of it functioned. It was just a okay. broken application, but it still existed on the store. Anyway, this was like a year ago. Um, it was the dumbest fucking app. Yeah, but dumbest fucking app. It. We actually used it for like we did. It's it's described use case. <laughs> True. It was literally a poke check if you're awake app for us, basically. Yeah, literally uh conversation last Thursday. Yo, yo. <laughs> <laughs> Point being, it stands. Okay, yeah. getting getting back to it. So in The Carriage of the Enemy, Vin and Ellen share a wonderful and frank conversation about their relationship and what Vin can or should be, which I think is a lot of what we've been talking about this week is what Vin can or should be. And this is specific to Ellen and their relationship. Obviously, this this wraps into those themes that we were talking about with Tin Will, but we get to match it up against Ellen's love and compassion for our girl Vin. What do you think of this sort of, I, I'd call it an affirmation. What'd you make? I think it was a much needed conversation. Agreed. It lets Vin know in very plain terms that Ellen loves her for her and just wants her to express herself. And she doesn't need to pretend to be anything. She can be who she is, who she wants to be, and he'll still love her. And like, that's obvious, but maybe this time it'll actually stick with Vin. And she won't question herself constantly and won't question her relationship with Ellen because I feel like it was pretty clear that that was the case, but Vin didn't. And Vin has the just negative attitude towards herself. And there's a, there's a very easy common term that I know is applicable here. And I can't think of it. She's self-conscious there's there's a more specific one i can't derogatory remember. she's you know bad self-talk like she she talks down to herself often she's yeah. disparaging against who she is and what she stands for i guess to to kind of follow up and we can we can dig, i want to dig into this just a little bit more is do you think that she will accept this do you think that this will be a turning point do you think that she'll take this as fact i think this will be one point in several that will push her to believe this. I don't think this alone will, but I think it'll be the point where she's starting to be willing to accept that, you know, like she needs more reinforcement, but this will be a cited, I guess, 
Yeah. Okay. So you're saying in like in the rear view, she'll be able to look back at this and, and reflect on it, but maybe not right now. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, I don't think Vin is acknowledging a whole lot emotionally right now outside of herself, which is why I think the dress scene is so magnificent is because that is mm-hmm. a moment where she feels herself again. But I do think she gets she gets a little warm part butterflies here, thankfully, which is a, a good thing. And I, you know, it is very sweet. And like you said, it is it is obvious. But at the same time, it's not obvious to Vin. She she lives and exists inside of self-doubt and disparaging self-talk and just general anxiety and a lack of trust in people because of the way that she was raised so i mean you don't falter for and i know that you're not saying that you falter by any stretch but you you can't fault her for her reaction but at the same time you just hope that like this is the time that she believes it this is the time that she thinks it's serious but at the same time what what can ellen do but repeat the words and prove it right yeah these seem to be starkly explicitly in opposition to what she believed though you know yeah yeah he's he's been able to refine it more i would say even over the course of this book so far to like kind of target her anxieties a little bit more clearly and be like hey you know like this okay now i understand a little bit more i've got more context we can talk about this of course i love you for who you are you don't have to be anything like i you are in the same context that tindwell said earlier too which is like i just want to help you be who you are whoever you are Um, And this is sort of that same affirmation. So similarly, going back to last week where we talked about Vin's sort of, it's not aggression, but animosity towards Tindwell's interactions with Elland. Do you think this and how Tindwell has kind of pushed her to sort of believe in herself more will be uh, reflective for Vin? And do you think she'll, she'll kind of get it as far as, Tindwell's place in both her and Ellen's life lives separately. I know you just asked me the question, but I, I want did. you to answer your own question yes. because I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but like, it's a, that's a valid question to ask. Like that is, I think the question that the text is posing to us at this point. So yeah. Yes. So yes is my answer. And <laughs> so I think this will be, I think now Vin has the, the experience and the perspective to understand why why it's different coming from an outside source as opposed to just being accosted by your your love you know yeah yeah that's fair that makes sense accosted by your love that is like a a bad 80s album title if i've ever heard one <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> like a new order <laughs> or joy division cure album title accosted by your love it's perfect okay good point so and then we we move on from this carriage scene of course being delivered by the enemy's carriage into the heart of the venture camp and we have a long conversation with Strat Venture about another thing spread out over the next two chapters. We're going to focus on what's in this chapter, of course, before we move into the next conversation. So this is the conversation that happens with, I think, Vin and Zane in the room at the same time. It might just be Vin. I think Zane's there. Zane isn't there. Zane isn't there. Okay, yeah. Just no. with Vin in the room in addition. But we've got a lot to got a lot to cover and we can kind of go wherever the fuck we want. So the barbs exchanged between the two are uh, fairly ridiculous because uh, Straff is a piece of shit. Although we've known that and recited that. Need mm-hmm. to come up with better insults. I'm going to steal uh, Mayonnaise Face Baby directly from Gideon because fuck Venture, piece of <laughs> shit. He is worth no more than my pinky toenail on a rotting beach. 
Yeah. But the barbs, the, though, like the, the the digs, the drags. I think it I think it kind of proves that this conversation isn't going to be. And maybe maybe this is a mistake on Ellen's part. But I felt like the back and forth proved that this wasn't going to be a straight up submission, you know? Yeah. Like, I feel like this should have come with the sort of wordplay was more like fencing where they're like squaring up and yeah. yeah. And it, it felt like the point was to come across as weak and I don't know. It worked out anyway, but like it, it, nothing felt clean here the whole, the whole time. Nothing felt clean or well-planned or well-played until, until the end. But even then it was like an epiphany moment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Ellen. Okay. So this, this entire scene for me is the epitome of something that Craig Clevenger of whom is a big writer. I've, I've taken a couple of his workshops called status play. What status play is, is kind of the way that a scene inside of a movie or a book juggles the power between two people in these sort of reposts of conversation. Right. And it's not as though it's just like, one person says one line and the other person says another. It can be subtle things like positioning. It can be inflection. It can be a whole monologue showing that someone's weak, right? And this is a great show of status play and the way that like the power wanes and waxes between the two of them. But the whole time for this for this chapter, chapter 26, Straff is in control for the most part. Ellen is like kind of trying to fight his way up a hill. Yeah. and And then... I don't want to say, I don't think Vin made the, I don't know how to evaluate Vin's call of, of kind of interrupting this careful conversation, admitting that they don't have the ATM. It wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. Do you mean the call wasn't going anywhere or the conversation? No, the, the conversation wasn't going anywhere. Right. Yeah. So this, this shook up the dynamic. It tripped up Straff and completely shifted his line of thinking and Basically, what it did was neutralize and allowed them to start fresh again from square from square one. You know? Yeah. Like, I, I don't think it gave Ellen an advantage, but it it started things over. Yeah. It at the very least put it, it offset the footing enough and disarmed Straff in an interesting way. And it gave Ellen a position, put everyone mostly on level ground, I think. And then it was a matter yeah. of, you know reassessing that power situation there's there's a lot of that kind of fencing like like i've been saying over the course of this and then this scene gets really weird with the child mistress from ellen's perspective that he notes and kind of knows what goes on there and she's like 15 and he's pretty sure that he knows what that is and we've already been in straff's head previously thinking about women and sort of the way that he approaches this is just another Do we get her age we get an assumption of her age from ellen we, we we get that she looks young i didn't think we got anything more specific than that he says she looks like she's 15 okay yeah it it pops up a little bit later and it's like at first it's like she's young and then like the next page it's like she's no more than 15 okay if, gotcha. I, if I remember correctly, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the thing. Yeah. It's, it is just not, not great. Straff is a piece of shit. Can we, can we come up with a, with a vile insult to call our enemies instead of books? Can we, can we, I'm not saying we need to do it right now, but we just need to, let's bake, 
easy bake oven this idea you know let's get in like two minutes off of like a (laughs) plastic sheet i don't fucking know but like he's vile dude's dude's awful he's it's it's great in a way because he's not cartoony evil if that makes sense i think that straff is actually a very complex type of villain very maniacal and manipulative and awful even to his own progeny because his progeny are like coins to him we'll get to that in a second but like oh my god oh no so bad yeah he's he's fucked (laughs) yeah fucked is right we'll talk about that more at the end of the next chapter for sure but Mm -hmm. so we end this chapter with straff and ellen beginning a frank conversation alone and we move into that the next chapter chapter 27 so on first read through yeah i absolutely thought that vin was gonna pull some trickery and like find her way back inside like sneak her way back into the room didn't matter didn't come true but that was my first thought was like she's not staying out of here but Mm. she can still hear everything anyway so you know that's that's definitely fair i think you know, we we spent a lot of time talking about adaptation, right? And the first book feels like a movie. I feel like this book feels like it needs to be a miniseries. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, the first book feels yeah. like you could capture it in one take. Like, it feels clean. This one's there's got a ton so, of nuance. The difference is, in this book, there's so much, like, there's so many, uh, it's less action-packed, this book. So I wanted to do a comparison of action scenes. There's actually more action at this point than there was in Mistborn. Um, I mean, but number of action scenes. Sure. Yeah. But there are, there's so much very distinct non-action scenes that kind of need to happen. The plot is not strictly guided by the action scenes. Right. So you can't combine things like you could with Mistborn. And make a single movie out of it. Like this one's a lot more complex and you'd need more time than a movie would allow. Yeah. And, and we're not so, even halfway it's so through distinct. Yet. I know exactly. Yeah. But you're right. Like there are more action scenes here, but those action scenes are shorter and less consequential. I feel like. Yeah. Less. There's less gravitas to them. The ones that we've had so far. So. Right. The, the like attack on the wall being a very short one, but one with consequence, actually, like that's actually a plot mm-hmm. adjacent event, you know? Yeah. OK, with that, we move into chapter 27. We start off here talking about the logbook. Uh, really short one. Again, a lot of these are very short, as we've described before. He was no simple soldier. He was a force of leadership, a man that fate itself seemed to support. We got our boy, Lendy. Yeah, this this one feels kind of written written as if hear me out like if we're looking at this tome this metal tome the previous one felt so much more like an actual quotation from a prophecy this feels like what came right after the end of the like the end quote you know oh yeah yeah sure sure so this feels st- like, like the not not citation direct almost quotation but still like an extension of and more specific application of this quotation to a lendy that's what i get out of it i guess 
I think that reads for me. I think I get that. Yeah. I, this is, this is tough. This is where this logbook is much harder to piece together than the other one because it is so, I don't want to say it is, it is truly drip feeding us. Like it is, there's almost no meat on these bones for like a couple of weeks. (laughs) For the most part, yeah. there's been nothing, nothing crazy, just a lot of kind of small context bits. So, yeah, 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 I can agree with you there. Yeah. So we move into the chapter. You were looking at the time. You good? All good? Oh, yeah. All good. Okay. Just, I was just looking making sure. at the I, waveform. Okay. Just making sure. Making sure um, that this was all still recording. Cool. My clock's right, right here. Oh, like, okay. Just want, just want to make sure. This, this is, this is just where Reaper lives. Yeah, I, I can see it out of the corner, so I figured it was maybe a double check. No, nope. but anyway, okay, good. Just making sure because we are we are in the last chapter. We're on the home stretch. Straff leads with the fact that he and Set have already met and exchanged pleasantries, and that they've agreed to work together to reconquer and split the final empire. They push forward in their politicking and smash and. Sh- Fuck, I can't even keep it straight. Straff smashes on a nerve. A year ago, he had made a mistake, and he should have stayed or killed the boy himself. He was never going to be able to leave, you know, this camp. He he threatens Alan, saying that he's not going to make it out of this alive. Right. I just want to real quickly give Michael Kramer so much credit for Straff's voice. I love kind of the menace of, of Straff. I agree. I was trying to play pay credit there, um, yeah. but, you know, I only can do I so. I got you. Only can do so many you. things, guys. I think first and foremost... I don't think we can trust anything that Straff says here. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. That's a that's a hot take from PJ here. <laughs> no, on first on first breath, reading this for the first time, initially, you're like, oh, maybe he did, and then by the end, you're like, you fucking piece of shit. There's no yeah, way he did. You fucking like, garbage panda. I don't believe there's any way that he and Set have any sort of actual understanding. I could believe that this is a half-truth. Like, I could believe that he actually went and met with Set and, like, discussed positions and, like, paths forward and a potential for an alliance of some sort or a truce. But I don't think anything was, like, solidified. And ultimately, I don't know if they ever actually met, like, there is so much my what I what I'm inclined to believe is that he went and met with Set and talked about possibilities without any actual like plans for a truce, but having that in your pocket and that conversation open allows for much more convincing lies or half truths coming out of you in the future. So I think his conversation with Elland is entirely full of half-truths, and all of his claims are not necessarily strict lies, but aren't full truths either. Does that make sense? Yes, I do. I do understand exactly what you're kind of like gnawing at is that it's it's difficult to parse exactly what he's getting at at any point in time, right? Mm-hmm. Like or rather not exactly what he's getting at, but the reality of the situation. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. more than anything else, I, and I, I hear you on the part of thinking that he, he might've made some moves, some jostlings with set, but I think it's just a flat out lie, man. I think it's just totally a bald That's, face. 
I think totally, you're a little totally tiny, possible squirmy, too. spermy piece of shit that doesn't matter to me. And I think that's what he's doing. But I think he's also somebody that understands the benefit of having open discourse. Probably true. Yeah. With an opposing army. So I could totally believe that he's had a conversation with Set. Whether or not that came to anything tangible or not, who knows? Mm-hmm. But being able to convincingly say that he's had discourse with Set is way easier if he's actually talked to the man. Yeah, yeah, he does actually have to strike up a conversation. So that's kind of a, hmm. you know, a starting point, needless to say. Yeah, it. I think, I think I agree with you for the most part that he would go to Set in this moment, but I think maybe he went to his son first because he believed that the son was easier than the enemy. That's fair. But I, I think that he, yeah. I think in the long term, you're right on evaluating his personality. I just don't know, you know, based on the information we have, if that makes sense. So that's true. Ellen very carefully pirouettes out of this incredibly dangerous proposition or position that he's in and delivers an absolutely magnificent line that is used for a brilliant cut between perspectives. I think that this is actually really clever on Brandon Branderson's part. So we hear Ellen say, kill me, father. And you'll die too. And then we cut to Vin's perspective and we hear, kill me, father, and you'll die too. And so we get his kind of lead up reaction and then Vin's payoff reaction to that same line. And that is just great. You know, it's it's not like it's terribly uncommon inside of fiction, but this is very cinematic. Even just from that, you can imagine even like a pull away shot, you know, cutting across the tent. Right. I wonder if it would have worked even better Instead of having the two of them at the same point, like back to back. Yeah. If you did like a line break, like lead up to the quote and then a line break and then the quote and then jump into and then another line break and jump into Vince's perspective. So you're kind of doing both. Maybe that's just more muddy. Maybe this makes this is this is definitely easier to read. But I'm just trying to figure out what's the most elegant way to do this. I think the proper way to do it is how he did it. However, I can see exactly what you're pointing to this. That would set a weird precedent, if that makes sense, of like multiple POVs going at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So I don't it's not that I dislike it. I think that it actually makes some sense. I actually think that functionally it it makes total sense. And that's actually how you would depict it in like a screenplay, for instance, is is like that you would depict it as Ellen saying it, but then you would also depict not necessarily you wouldn't depict the camera movement, but instead you depict the shift in perspective. So you'd go from perspective one to perspective two with the line being th- there. Yeah. Like I, I think you'd shift from Ellen saying it halfway through like kill me father. You'd see like you'd see Ellen saying kill me father and then yep. you see Vin hearing and you'll die too. Yeah. Yep. I think that's how you do it. Yeah. Ultimately, how that's written on the screenplay is basically how you described it. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I think that stylistically, it's very cool. I know a couple of authors who have definitely done shit like that inside of books, and those books are highly stylized. So it feels like it fits. It would be weird for Brandon to do it at this point. You know what I mean? Like it would be a step outside of his norm. It would be weird. But like and Jeff like Vandermeer, this, this is would such a strange, like out of our, <clears throat> out of our bag, 
commentary on like yeah. how he writes. Like it doesn't matter. No, because I really like what this. he was saying. Yeah. Like I really like it too. I'm just wondering like what's the most elegant way to write this? And it feels yeah. like he's close and for his style makes the most sense the way he did it. So Yeah, yeah, I I think I think I can agree with that. Um, no I think complaints if, whatsoever. Right. I think I made mention of my love for Jeff Vandermeer before on the show, and we have exchanged many a letter and many a tweet. And we are many, we are good friends. He sent me a very rare edition of a book of his signed Many good friends. Many good friends. Good friends with Jeff Vandermeer. Very excited to eventually have him on the show after you read something of his. We have to figure out what. But the core point being, I think Jeff would do something like this in a couple of his books because they're so highly stylized in this kind of very interesting way where you could have something like that in the middle of a break point between perspectives and you would understand that they both heard it. But this is just not something that Brandon has ever done or set up to do. So it doesn't it wouldn't pay off properly. The expectation. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a it's a weird thing. Like you can get away with it if you set the precedent, but you didn't set the precedent. So it's, we talked about right. this with Gideon quite a lot. By the way, go listen to our short pour on Gideon the Ninth. Coming out tomorrow. Yep. <laughs> with that uh, with Pierre Ford. Or yesterday. Depending. Or, or I, th- I think it's, to- <laughs> I think it's going to be tomorrow. I think it's going to be Friday. So <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to try to push it out on Wednesday is the plan actually. And then we're going to see if it works. And then Thursday's repairs and Friday might be the official launch. That's the Fair game enough. plan. But either way, go check out that episode. I think that in that episode, we did a very good job of breaking down how a writer sets expectations, mm. in particular, kind of addressing something like this. Like, fuck, Gideon could get away with this in Act 4 to Act 5. <laughs> that transition is actually a great point where you could get away with something like this. Yeah. You could have that line float on an ether page between acts. Anyway, okay. Point being, still really like the line. This, he, he then kind of takes that line, and we hear from Vin's perspective, and this is why I think that perspective shift is so critical that ellen plays into an insecurity of straff saying that he's being emotionally manipulated with emotional allomancy and this is a fucking master stroke that he's basically <laughs> been saying that vin's been kind of fucking with him the whole time and then ellen starts to kind of like puppet the emotions that he wants him to feel through the walls by saying them out loud and she makes them happen through writing and soothing and it is it's such a good scene. It's such a good scene God, front to back. It's it's a great scene, but they so yeah. so incredibly bumble fucked their way into this position. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah they did. This was not the intention. This mm-hmm. is Ellen being able to read the read the room honestly in a way that's better than I expected him to be able to. Like this what is his dad. Un- but yeah, yeah, but this has less to do with his dad and more just his ability to like read situations and conflate those and integrate those with what he knows of Vin. Like this felt so much more clever than anything we've seen from Ellen before. Sure. Which was super satisfying. Don't, don't get me wrong. It just felt, it felt extra felt a little bit like extraordinary. Well, like, compared to what we know of Ellen so far. Sure. I, I guess if it were... Okay. Let me let me put this at the very least into my perspective on this situation, if that makes sense. I can understand mm-hmm. kind of the read of it being extra. But let's say you and I got into an argument over the future of our company. You would know every we single fucking button. We always to, do. 
<laughs> always all the time super upset very angry at you constantly no mm-hmm. just kidding but let's say we did <laughs> You would okay. know exactly how to twist my nipples, <laughs> like exactly <laughs> how to do it, right? You would counterclockwise, even, is the even though, even though it's not something that you're practiced in. <laughs> counterclockwise from center, fuck you. Even <laughs> it's not something that you're practiced in. It's something that I, I'm confident you would be able to do. Yeah. I, however, that's also work. True. Yeah, I, I think you would knock it out of the park. I work in sales, and that's kind of my job to some degree. It's it's it, gradually it's emotional manipulation, if we're being honest. So not necessarily emotional. It's like economic. I don't, I don't fucking know. It's fucking it's sales, guys. It's I don't need to explain it more. The point being is that you could consider me practiced in something like that, and you a novice by comparison. However, you have all of the tricks up your sleeve to fuck me up, which I think is what, that's a very good point. Good point. Yeah. yeah. I, I got around to it. That's I guess that's kind of my point yeah. is that like Ellen may be a novice, but this is his this is the foe. This he has the foe's weaknesses, even though I'm not good at fucking with people. I could fuck with you. Yeah, right. Exactly. So even though exactly. Ellen's not good at fucking with people, he could fuck with Straff. Right. Because he knows Straff. Yeah. 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 I get that completely, and that is like the best way you could have described it. I can't. It's I can't think job. of it any other way. For the most part, it's like you have to. It's a talent. It's a skill, and you know we hope that Ellen develops the the other abilities so that he can do this with other people because he obviously has set and Josties variously to deal with as well. But Josties is going to get decapitated by his own army. Let's be real. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> to me. Straff is kind of easy mode out of all the shit that he has to deal with, especially with the way this chapter ends, right? Like, Straff is the easy one because it's just his, mm-hmm. his, his dad, and he knows that his dad is a piece of shit. He knows everything about his dad, yeah. and he knows how to play on his insecurities. So I think that's I don't kind think of he knows everything thing. about his dad. Well, he doesn't clearly know everything. He doesn't know that Zane exists. <laughs> or, like, all of his siblings. The yeah. entire yeah. Like, task Squad. force of siblings. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> but but to your to your point before I mentioned that they almost fumbled the fucking bag like they almost fucked this entire thing up still. And this yeah. is this is a masterstroke to pull it out of that bumble fuck that you said it was into something that was salvaged and anxiety and a, a way for Ellen to escape this camp. I can't remember where I first heard the term bumble fuck. I, yeah. I really can't remember I feel like we might have been together. It might have been like something shared between the two of us. But it's one of my favorite words at this point. I agree. I use it more often than I should. Do you remember it, where it came from? Like, no. I feel like it was probably a year and a half ago, maybe. I don't I don't remember. A year and a half ago when we started using Bumblefuck? Yeah. No, it was longer ago than that, my friend. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for you're sure. probably right. Yeah, we've been running this podcast for nearly two years. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's probably like... It was, it was probably like six years. I bet it's like six years ago that we started using the term bumblefuck. Yeah, that might be true. Yeah, because we, we've always had a fascination with incredible insults. I mean, like, what was the lizard fucking one? The Like, it wasn't lizard fucking any PETA or anyone at home, but it was... Something of a tune with that. You lizard licking fuck. I can't, I can't remember. It sounds like an always sunny insult, you know? And it to be fair, bumblefuck probably came from always sunny. I could believe that. Yeah. I could believe that. It might have. For us, I mean, not necessarily that it originated there, but Okay. Right. 
point being, I love whatever the fuck is. is the term. And they almost fumbled the bag and bumblefucked their way into a, into an early grave, but they stepped out. They of their survived. Six feet. Yeah. Yep. Of that six feet tomb. So obviously, the, the other part of the scene that's going on, we've got the soothing going on, we've got the conversation with uh, Straff and Ellen, and then we have Zane show up in kind of this maniacal energy it's kind of exuding from this man every time that he's in the fucking room and uh he's sitting there talking he he has this conversation with vin and he says tell me why is it always people like you and me have to be the knives ah, it's such a good line <laughs> a it's such a good line this is one of my favorite lines all that zane every time zane talks it is so well executed such a good character but it also strikes kind of at the heart at what he's talking about to Vin privately and this part of her personality that she's dealing with, right? Like she's, we've got a lot of different things juggling around here that juggle around mm-hmm. Vin, Vin's identity, right? That she's now acquired after the last book. But predominantly, Zane's pushing on a very different element or note than anyone else is. Not of you can be more than just, you know, be be who you need to be. He's pushing on this note of her being superior in the form that she is as a mistborn as the one who killed the lord ruler lord ruler yeah 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 and he he further presses of course to kind of end this little bit on the why of ellen and her relationship with him right i i seriously can't reiterate enough how much this wormy voice reminds me of reen like it it I know it's not the same as like Reen's constant rhetoric of inadequacy, I guess, for Vin. It's not the same, but it has the same vibe, I guess. It's not as disembodied as Reen's voice was. Like there's there's somebody tangible to it and it's actively being said as opposed to Vin's mind conjuring what she thinks Reen would say in this moment. Like there, it's not the same but it it gives me the same feeling. It does have a similar sinister kind of note to it. Yeah. Not sinister it, might be it, too it's, far it's of a word, but sinister may, may be a little bit too far, but it, it's a source of questioning and insecurity for Vin. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And I still think it's possible that this is Reen. It's as mentioned, it's you feeling can bend the letters. Less, yeah. It's feeling less and less likely, but I still think it's possible. Do you remember how old Vin was when Reen fucked off? I know. I don't know. I do not remember. Should we maybe know? I can try to figure that out. I don't know. If uh, it was my. It was before Cayman's crew, right? No. He actually got her in debt with Cayman's crew and then ran away. So it was after joining Cayman's crew. That's for sure. Okay. So she should definitely remember what Vin or what Reen looks like. Yes. Yeah. So he'd have I think to, there's it, no if, question. If Zane is Reen, their face had to have changed significantly. Yeah. For Vin to not pick up and on I, it. And I think she even recognizes him as looking similar to uh, similar to Ellen, but not the same, but similar. Okay. okay. So another strike against my theory, Ellen. but ah, maybe that's not maybe wait, maybe that happened. I don't remember. She at the very least recognizes the hair. I think she recognizes some of the features. I don't know that she's put it together yet. Okay. That might be a whoopsie, but either way, like I'm holding on to it, but I'm not 
that convinced anymore that it's true. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. So we cut to Ellen and Vin finally being able to walk away from the camp successful on their mission to come in and have this negotiation of which really didn't result in any. What what was that? Somehow. (laughs) Yes, somehow. Somehow walking out of this with with any sense of with their heads on their shoulders, basically. And I mean, it's it's an absolute shock. It's it's definitely not something that we've we're fully prepared for. But we then cut to Straff's perspective about talking with Zane about taking out Vin. But in many ways, Zane doesn't seem to want to. He's kind of playing against that and instead recommends allomancers that can't be traced with this like hint and undertone of something else that we're unaware of. And then we're informed of what it is just shortly thereafter. And it's even more further fucked up shit about Straff Venture, where he genuinely created a bunch of mistings with mistresses through messed up relationships and manipulations. Just f- f- fucking, oh my God, spreading his seed in any fertile bed. And I mean, the dude is just begging to get caught by the Lord Ruler. It's a shock, of course, that that didn't happen previously, especially considering how important he is to the entire operation. Like, Jesus Christ, this man is a prolific piece of shit. Yeah. So I've got a few different points to make. First of all, he straight up turned himself into a misting factory. I could. But the the other part, I just want want to add just a smidge there. In order to make sure that they're mistings, he has to make sure that they snaps. They snap. Excuse me. That's a good point. Like, so he has to raise the kids or have the kids raised for a while and then snap them or attempt to snap them. Feeds like that feeds into my theory that he's not at risk of getting caught by the Lord Ruler because I think he brings whatever ska woman that he's having this child with into his own keep. Like, I, I don't think they're out in the world kind of willy nilly. Like he's very clearly keeping them close. I think it's a little bit worse than that. I think, and, and I think you're right, but I think I would shift away from bringing them into the keep and likely putting them into the pits of Hathson because of like Zane scars and things like that. Right. The, the, the mothers, I'm not saying the mothers. I'm saying the, the children. I'm, I'm, I'm talking right? the mothers because the oh, mothers yeah. are the way that he would get caught. He's got an entourage as they've been described in, in this kind of I, I don't think entourage is the word that's used, but he brought many mistresses of which have been addressed yeah. in the previous sections. So I would assume similarly, he was probably dragging them around with him. And at that point, you're probably right. It's probably a majority of his servants. Yeah. So I, I don't think he's that at risk of getting caught by the Lord Ruler previously. For that reason. Gross, really kind of fucked up that I've got here. As far as Alamancy goes and mistings and mistborns and bloodline purification goes, I know that he doesn't seem like he'd be above it, but would there be a benefit to him like procreating with his own children that are mistings as a means of trying to produce mistborn well it's fucked that's super fucked but this dude more so than everything else this is this is like a step beyond i think where he's been described but it's not unattainable 
You know what I mean? It's not like it's it's not like unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a step past Um, what he's done, but it's the dude sunk to. And we know that dehumanizing lows. Sorry. Just the strength of people's mantic abilities are directly or statistically proportional to the purity of their bloodlines. So if he's intentionally essentially turning himself into a breeding program with his own children that are already mistings because he's a misting and he's a, of a very pure bloodline. Does that purify it further and create a higher probability of, of a mistborn or at least misting offspring? I know we don't one have would the assume, answers yet. One would assume we it don't would. have the answers, yeah. but one would assume, I assume it, would. it would. Yeah. And I don't think that Straff Venture is above that line of inquiry. Pursuit. Yeah, right. Yeah. I considering the child that he brings in as his mistress. Right. The 15 year old. Right. I and could there's... totally believe that that's one of his children. And his perspective this week ends on like one of the most vile notes that I've seen this like book and Brandon in general take, which is like he's going to imagine fucking Vin when he's uh, fucking like fucking this 15 year old like and that's good enough for him for the time being that satiates that like need and desire. And that is all kinds of fucked up seriously like actual genuine like whoa levels of yeah yeah what a bastard person yeah there's there's never there have been few characters in fiction that i've wanted to die more um and straff comes off as like a put him down for everyone's sake it's not just like it's not just so it's all of the people he abuses. It's the system that he upholds. It's the continuation of the repression of the Lord ruler previously through still utilizing the obligators. There's so much here. Straight up first book, like yep. in the final empire, I understood the like hatred for Straff, but I didn't, I didn't quite understand how aggressive of a take you were taking like you were yeah yeah about I, it. I maybe yeah it, it didn't feel that crazy but now i completely understand where you're coming from you just get those you know? hints of it in that first book and upon you get hints reread, of for sure i was like oh he is we're we're getting hints and we're like being able to ascribe them to other things but in reality if you know if you know what the fuck is going on from the context that you get in this book you're like oh oh he is bad he is like yeah awful right especially considering he has so many illegitimate heirs to the point of where zane suggests sending in like a strike force of illegitimate heirs. suggest asks for it like yeah. request it yeah yeah partially because he doesn't want to get his own hands dirty and because i think he doesn't think that they can do it well, and i don't think no, he, i also he, don't think he wants to kill vin he needs help is what he says like he he needs them in assistance i think is what he mentions like i don't, I don't know if it was he that needs, he needs the assistance of a strike force i think he said what if they do it instead like what if, i think that this is a better idea i thought he said i need a strike force i'll need some help what kind of help a strike team elementers that can't be traced yeah god it's small th- it's small things about zane right like that i really like zane nodded and then walked away with a self-satisfied stroll like it's also great alliteration that yep. definitely conveys his sort of 
gaudy authority. Love it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Straff is garbage. And yeah, yeah, it sounds like, obviously, you're right. The Alamancers are, are there to help Zane for sure. Or planned to be, you know, it's going to be a half Straff squad. Half Straff. Half Straff. Half Straff. Half Straff. Yeah. It's like a flag at half mast, but it's half Straff. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> half Straff. Half half staff made me think of an erection joke and then i thought of straff and i got angry like as opposed to like <laughs> having any kind of funny reaction i got mad <laughs> like good i'm so tilted in this moment get mad get yeah. mad okay we end our read for the week because we don't read another log book because this is the end of a part uh is we end this week with a congratulations congratulatory toast to how excellently ellen's plan went and how everything everyone thought that it was absolutely brilliant that that it went swell and then we get news that ellen has been deposed while he was away (sighs) that's some deflation right there oh (laughs) fuck man and and you know what's even worse the next chapter is titled king yep so like you know that it's not as though this is all going according to plan. <laughs> like the, clearly we have a struggle. Yeah. 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 Thoughts. I, I guess, I guess the thing to ask because we are at a decent cliffhanger here is do you have any thoughts going into the next section? Like what are, what are you looking for? What are you excited for? What do you think will happen? Well, I think what's going to be a, a very strange power dynamic is that the palace the royal palace right now is keep venture so they're not they're not going to move out of his own keep so power is going to shift into a different physical location which it's going to be really weird i think and it's going to make for some really strange tension in the in the actual like physical move i think they move into critic shaw in a very like I don't know. Like revert the power structure kind of way. Yeah, but also like the actual move I think is going to be cautious. And I think that is going to be a point of like seizing opportunity to converse with individual members of the assembly. Like when they're actually like in the process of moving, (laughs) moving their offices, whatever that means. I don't know if they have physical stations within Keep Venture. I'd assume they would. But moving to Critic Shaw, if that happens, that's an intimidating step. And I think that chaos could be sown at that point. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, King, to me, the name of the next section being King means that somebody that we know will become at least... The stand-in king. Fucking who? I don't know the assembly members well enough to know. By that, you mean you don't remember their names or what they... Yeah. The assembly includes a couple of people that we've talked to before. One of the one of the big ones is uh, Penn. And then we've got uh, Phylon, who is a merchant. And I think we had... Ellen is also on the assembly. For the record, like regardless of, you know, being king or not, he's a part of the assembly. And we have, I think Hawes was the ska representative that we had at that point that we were aware of. I think those were the three. Okay. If the ska even spoke, not that like giving a name like that is a giveaway, but so I think the ska, I'm I'm making a prediction 
and I'm going a little bit off the wall. I think Jostes moved ahead of his army and met with the assembly members and promised his army to the assembly in exchange for kingship, like in in exchange for a position as king. So I think Jostes is going to be like named king out from under Ellen's like rulership under threat of annihilation by Kolos army. Cool. I think I captured the spirit of what you're saying. Yeah. Sweet. I, I love that. I love that. Anything else? Any, any other thoughts on the section as a whole? It was a fun, really quick, easy read. Like th- this felt way less dense than every other section that we've read even including like the first book, you know, like this, yeah. this definitely felt like the, the most breezy, no pun intended. Yeah, no, I, I definitely feel you there. Makes sense mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. I, I think that that's also just the nature of Brandon's writing is it's getting, it's gotten cleaner since that first book. And I think that a lot of this has that, and we have been reading lengthier sections in part so that we can, you know, move through this book and into kind of our plan to hit the lost metal in time when it comes out so right you know it's that's all a part of this so i don't want to pretend like we're maybe not going a little bit faster because of that but we are so right exactly with that we can move into pj's previous predictions so kicking it off here with the first prior prediction and the only prior prediction that we have playing off is a question here that I asked Tindwell, what do you make of her assertions on Ellen's character and what do you see her role in the story being? You said shit. Where is this? There we go. I think she's pretty spot on regarding Ellen's character. He has not acted like a King. And for that, he's been taken advantage of during talks. He also hasn't felt like a King and the lessons here fairly quickly help that self perception. She will be important to the story in the immediate as a way of unifying the leadership under Elland, but in the long run, I think that there's some ulterior motives at play. We haven't seen any ulterior motives. I don't know why this is being resolved here. Well, the reason that I think that I was having it be resolved is because the leadership is not under Elland, clearly, right? Like, not unified under Elland. He, she definitely helps with that. Yes. You're second guessing your like resolution here, aren't you? I am. I'm fine with like pushing this. Yeah, I think we're going to. And it's not because I don't think this is the resolution. I think we just need to see it a little bit more solidly given the depth of your prediction. The yeah. thing that I was honing in on was like really the first two or three points, more or less. It's that final bit that makes this multifaceted that makes me have to wait to answer this. So totally fair. Okay, so we got nothing to talk about this week. Woo! No predictions. No <laughs> predictions to pay off. Woo! Okay, so we move into last week's question here. Last week's question, I got very specific, and I wanted everyone listening to get very specific on their favorite fantasy races. So I wanted to hear fantasy species, fantasy races. Sci- sci-fi is science, like science fiction, fantasy. I don't care. Just give me, give me more than just orcs. That was that was really I think the way that I put it orcs and goblins give me more than that and uh, I think we got we got more than that which is good we got some meaty meaty mm-hmm. answers here that I'm excited to talk about so I think I gave you all the long ones on accident not realizing it that's hysterical I'm excited for you to read <laughs> oh I'm I'm the not bolded ones oh well I'm bolded in everything 
Okay. I'm always the bolded answer. Let's just... <laughs> You're right. You're right. I wanted you to for sure read the... That one. Okay. That's really the only one that I was being... I'll fix this. You can read. Go ahead. All right. So, Dylan, my favorite fantasy race slash species is the elves of Tolkien's Legendarium, specifically the original Valar from the First Age. These were the 14 Aenir created by Iru Iluvatar. Iluvatar? Iluvatar, I think is the proper pronunciation, who actually helped sing Ea, the universe, into existence and were directly responsible for the creation of Arda, Earth. Among the 14, we get the best and worst of the legendary, uh, the best and worst the legendarium has to offer. By way of example, on one end, on one end we get Yavanna, who was responsible for creating the two trees of Valinor. And on the other end, we get Melkor, who fell from grace and became Morgoth, the big bad and Sauron's boss. Yeah. PJ, despite having taken a class in Tolkien literature, these words are still impossible. This is to say. depth. Yeah. This is depth in Tolkien. <laughs> this is this is a knowledge here to heretofore <laughs> unexpected in, with this question, and I love it. Um, My class on Tolkien was more about like his world building process, and like, well, this is a big part of the world building, though, or the process. N- n- the process. Mm. So on ferry is one of like the only one of the only Tolkien works that we wrote or that we read was on ferry and like his sort of perspective on getting into the mindset mm. of writing for fantasy as well as like the the other works that we actually read were biographies on Tolkien and like mm. outside perspectives looking in. So Tolkien okay. in the great war, I think I've got that on my, I'm pretty sure you have it. Yeah. No, but I've seen on it. my desk over here. So like that's Tolkien was in world war one. Yeah. Right. As a soldier. So looking at his, his experience in the war and how that might have, and probably did, affect the way that he wrote fantasy was a lot of what we talked about in that class. We talked less like we didn't read any middle earth stuff. We didn't read any of his fiction. We wrote on fairy or we read on fairy and we read Tolkien the great war. So those were the only two works we actually read during that class. Yeah. This, this is, this is a depth in the Lord of the Rings lore that is, it, it, it there's a lot to it yeah it's really really cool but there's a lot there's a lot to grab there so yeah i agree with you by and large there's there's so much to grab and this is one of those interesting things this happens to me probably once every three months is i will stumble into a question or factoid about something that i'm thinking about the lord of the rings and i'll stumble into the wiki the really detailed lord of the rings wiki and i won't yep. leave <laughs> And yeah. I just live there for a day until I have to go to bed. And I, like, cannot disconnect from it because it, there's so much there. There is, like, mm-hmm. such an engrossing world, even in the way that people have rewritten 
his like just in the way that people are trying to communicate his ideas even is engrossing. It's insane. It's insane. Love it. Tolkien this is a fantastic is such such an amazing mind when it comes to world building. Yeah. It is fucking absurd. Like I'll leave it at that. Like Yeah. It's it's difficult to find any sort of modern comparison. Couldn't agree more. Okay, next up here from Ivana, we have my favorite aliens are the Time Lords. They are power, they are a powerful race from the planet Gallifrey that see themselves as the custodians for all technology that pertains to time travel and the manipulation of time and space. The specific alien I love is one whose name we do not know and never will, but goes by the moniker The Doctor. The Doctor has two hearts, never carries a weapon, but always has a sonic screwdriver at hand, a tool to fix things. If a Time Lord is mortally wounded, they regenerate into a new body. The Doctor is a renegade who stole the TARDIS and has been roaming space and time for centuries. I know Doctor Who, I've... I... I... I dated a couple of women who absolutely adored Doctor Who, and I never managed to watch a single episode in that time frame. I've never seen. I have watched one since, and largely, definitely want to go into it. I think this has been a discussion in the Discord that, like, if there's anything that I feel like I'm missing out on, if I have to choose, let me put it this way if I have to choose between Supernatural and Doctor Who, I'm going to pick Doctor Who because that's more my shit. Both of them are just so daunting. There's you know? so much. There's so much. So I'm way. I I need to ask for a curated selection of where to begin. And it feels like yeah. it's one of those things where you can like pick an era and live in an era of a doctor and kind of expect that. But I feel like there's probably an era to start in and then move forward from. It feels like it'll right. be one of those for the most. Not entirely. I I always say this and people get angry, but it feels like it'll be one of those background shows where it's like, okay, I can try to catch up on a lot of this by keeping it in the background and listening and focusing on some of those things. And then when I get really invested after it's been a background show for a bit, it becomes a foreground show of where like, you know what I mean? I don't know. That was me in Clone Wars. It took it took a season basically of sitting there and having it in the background and having it be like static noise. I mean, you go like, okay, I can see the merit in this and then going, okay, now I want to sit and pay attention. So, right, right, for sure. Yeah, cool. Moving forward, Sharkbait's answer. There's too many good ones, but I'm going to go with. Naomi Novik's dragons in the Tiramir. Temeraire? Temeraire? Temeraire. T-E-M-E-R-A-I-R-E. Temeraire? Yeah. Temeraire? Temeraire, I think. Is right. Yeah. Temerary? In that the, might be it. Either way. Naomi Novik's dragons in the Temeraire series. Dragons with the general personalities of puppies. <laughs> what on earth could be better? Except maybe Syl. I love her. Syl is a character Don't, that I've gotten to know fondly over the I, last I, couple of I'm weeks. I'm not familiar. <laughs> I understand. You will be. <laughs> but. Okay. <laughs> you will come to be familiar. I cannot agree more on Syl. I have not read Naomi Novik's series. But I, I, dragons are a great answer. Dragons is it. We get a, we get a repeat answer on this, but for different reasons, which is excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, dragons, man. Yeah. Okay. This next one, PJ. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut this out. But what we're going to do is I'm going to say Bing and I'm going to say Wookiees from Star Wars. And then you're going to go, and I'm going to go, and we're going to do that for a bit and just like have it be like us arguing about Wookiees being great. Okay. Cool. All right. I think it'll work. (laughs) All right. So 
Next up, we have Bing, my brother's answers, and he he submits uh, a classic science fiction sort of staple at this point from Star Wars, and that would be the Wookiees. That's not a Wookiee. I don't. <laughs> they don't have questions. <laughs> well, they do. Yeah, he sometimes asks questions. What do you mean? Neither of us are good at this. We're not good at this. <laughs> I'm bad at this. You're bad at this. Let's cut our losses here. Yeah, that's fair. Bingham very literally put G A U H H H H H G, which I, I asked for further clarification, and he explained, "You just don't understand Wookiee." Yeah, no. it's like well, yeah, it's pretty point. true. Yep. That's true. Guag was right. That was, that was much Guag. So we've got uh, Summit. This is that repeat, huh? My favorite fantasy creatures are dragons and wyverns. I love that they have such a range throughout fantasy, from a singular oppressive slash evil dragon like Smaug or the Nameless One in Priority, Priory of the Orange Tree. Not familiar. My favorites are the stories where they're is a mind-slash-emotional connection to a human-like in the Bound and the Broken series by Ryan Cahill or the Inheritance Cycle by Paolini. Is that correct? P-A-O-L-I-N-I? Yep, Paolini. Paolini. Yep. As we saw in Game of Thrones, they are masters of epic destruction, but are also incredibly loyal and will die for their human. And let's face it, who doesn't want to ride a dragon? I'll fucking ride a dragon. Like, give me the chance. Absolutely. I'd love to ride a dragon. It's like flying an airplane with none of the anxiety about crashing. I don't know about that. What do you... Like, you're none not... Of the, none of the anxiety of crashing, but there's a different anxiety of not controlling where you're going and getting thrown off the fucking thing. I mean, if it's a wild <laughs> dragon, sure. But assuming that we've got some level of tame, like... Okay. I'm assuming I'm, I'm basing this based on the bound of the broken and like the inheritance cycle and even like the game of gotcha. Thrones dragons when they react to da- Daenerys. Right. So like the in control freedom nature and like being able to fly without concern, I I think is without that many concerns. I mean, given there's still like, you know, you never know when a giant fucking boat driven crossbow system might show up in the middle of the ocean and kill one That's of your fair. precious dragons that you've been building. I got angry for no reason. I'm sorry. I'm done. But the point being, yeah, I agree. Dragons are great. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Lindsay, our contributor and obvious listener to the show says snakes. I don't know what it is about them. <laughs> and while they aren't strictly fantastical, I think they're great. I, I assume that like a lot of this is based on mythology. The mythology of snakes is really interesting because they are kind of portrayed as this maniacally fantastical creature. I mean, throughout the, I mean, you can look at the Bible, you can look at the, the basis of Abrahamic religions. That's kind of a, a base point. But even before that, you had the like Greco Roman tradition having snakes as these kind of like evil things. And they, they permeated stories for a very long time. And so I think snakes are, are up there with dragons mythologically, but not as fantastically, if that makes sense. They're not as impressive despite their kind of interesting nature, their like fascination. Dragons, at least in like Eastern cultures are usually described as serpentine. Yeah. Right. So I assume that they have similar origin points as far as like, like, I assume snakes feed into the dragon Yes, yeah, mythos, right. 
Yeah, I yeah. totally agree with that. I just meant that like they don't feel as fantastical or mythical or legendary. Like saying snakes are your favorite fantasy species or creature is. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. You know, like saying spiders are, which is like spiders are real, but like fantasy spiders are cool and fantasy snakes are really cool, including fantasy snake dragons. Fuck true. yeah. Fuck yeah. No, I like that. Tim Pearson, Xenomorphs from Alien. Or aliens. Cool design, scary as hell, great origin story. Also, Ripley is gangster. All very true points. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any sort of disagreement there. Absolutely. Yeah, those those are excellent points. The xenomorph is an incredible animal. God, what's it called? Okay, I do have an answer here. Yeah, now is now is time for you. What's your yeah, answer? I, I just I just came to realize that it was something that I was going to have to answer. So here's the thing. This is hard to explain. So I'm just going to try my best to do it. My favorite species race creature to some degree comes from born and it's a god no maybe that's not right that's too specific it's almost like a character but they're like they're biogenetically manipulated organisms and there's like a family species of them but that almost makes some technology not really like a race i i don't even think i'm answering my own question if i answer with this answer do you have your answer readily available i want to reconsider yep okay i do what's your answer my answer is the Protoss from StarCraft. Mm, that's a good so, one. It's this psionic race of humanoids, incredibly intelligent, incredibly technology-driven, but also primarily focused on and bound by religion. So it's it's this religious, scientific hyper-intelligent psionic race of people that they don't have mouths. They they strictly speak psionically. Through the Kala, originally. Like, but... Yeah. Super, super cool. Like, lore. I don't know. That's, that's where I started with StarCraft, also. Just from... As a player, I started playing Protoss. Because... Of your, like, honestly, it was your recommendation. Like, they are, in StarCraft 2, they are definitely, like, the easiest to understand and play, you know, at a, at a lower level. So, that's where I started, and that's what I, that's how I got into the lore of StarCraft, was playing Protoss. I... Love that answer, A, of course. Like, I think that that's a great answer. I have a tough time not just, like, copping out and saying the Zerg, which is the other new race inside of StarCraft, because <laughs> they are pretty those, incredible. That's a, that's a series of races. Yes, but the core race is one that is is kind of like the Borg, in a way. You know what I mean? Like, the, the core of it is that it's an organism that, that grows and kind of expands itself. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's still stuff, tough to say the Zerg, which is another reason that I, I won't say something like the Borg. I really like... I, I've, I'm a diehard. I was diehard. I should say I'm not a diehard, but I was a diehard Warcraft fan, um, diehard World of Warcraft guy inside and out of that lore. I still keep up with it to this day, even though I haven't, I don't play the regular game at this point. I have not played WoW in years. My favorite race, I think one of the most interesting is the Warcraft race Naga and sort of the way that they tie into the history of the whole thing. They're originally elves. 
um, that are using magic with reckless abandon. They're not supposed to. They accidentally call this demonic legion upon the world. It splits the world of which is just one big continent into two and buries them in the water and and for their use of their reckless use and reckless abandon of using magic they're shaped and twisted into serpentine almost immortal creatures so they live forever under the water and have lost all semblance of of their quote humanity they're they're elves they were elves previously and it kind of becomes this like atlantean thing but they're not good there's none of them are good because they started the original war that like started everything on azeroth yeah it's it's this whole thing i i, mm-hmm. I think that's it i think that i think that's probably okay. my pick yeah we're the like blizzard shills huh yeah we we did both shill blizzard unfortunately but it is you know old blizzard had a great handle on lore and i couldn't tell you a single backstory of an overwatch character so uh, with that <laughs> you can tell how i feel about modern <laughs> blizzard in a moment my favorite race is gorilla or the hamster the giant fucking hamster that they have (laughs) what (laughs) anyway at least the gorilla made sense the hamster doesn't make any fucking sense to me so for next week let's talk about father figures who's the best good we're going good father figures good father figures good father figures fuck straff so let's go good father figures so talking father figures who's the best daddy (laughs) shit I hate, I hate saying it so much. I hate you. Uh, it came up inside of the Discord today, so it's like I have to use it. I have to. We have to use that phrasing again. Cool. So with that, next week we are going to be reading chapters twenty-eight through thirty-three. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to our producers Tim and Andrew for helping us keep our show's lights on. You can check out all our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our website, all of our social media accounts in one very convenient location. Yeah, yeah. You can find us um, online at all of the places like PJ was saying. If you if you cannot follow through on the link at Words and Whiskey, or sorry, excuse me. You can find us online, as PJ mentioned, on all of our socials at Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. You can send us an email with your answer to the question of the week or any other feedback that you might have or anything interesting that you want to tell us about at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. And you can join our Patreon, Patreon Discord, get access to all of our new episodes a little bit early via patreon.com forward slash wordsandwhiskey. Yeah. Thank you so much for any support that you're... Fuck. Thanks so much Um, for listening. Thank you Thank you so much for the support in the form of listening. If you have anything else that you want to hear us talk about, you can reach out to us and we are happy to converse with you on any of our socials and through our email. So we look forward to any and every interaction with anybody that listens. Or on Gideon the Ninth. Yes. Pierre Ford did a wonderful job and chatted with us for like an hour and a half talking about her favorite story. Gideon the ninth on our yes. short pour feed. Excellent. With that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.